Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Okay, hello, everybody, and I apologize. Uh, my uh, headset just went out. Properly connected, but I hope you while I fix that problem. Um, I wanted to talk to you all about something today. You know, I, I'm so disappointed. Uh, um, Arizona this week refused to extradite a man wanted for murder in New York. Their excuse is that they don't like the New York district attorney because, you know, he indicted Donald Trump. And you already know that Texas has declared its own basically right to a foreign policy, and it barred U.S. forces from positions um, near the Rio Grande. These are lawless acts of an empowered minority seeking to dominate the rest of us. And they're not alone. I mean, in Alabama, and we'll talk about this uh, later in the show, a court has ruled that embryos are children. That ruling cited scripture, not law. Families desperate to have children now may not. Legal chaos is assured as, you know, questions go unanswered. I mean, will these embryos be counted in the census to determine representation in the legislature? Will they be required to file tax returns? I mean, those questions are madness, right? But if the law says they are humans and they're children, well, guess what? It's it, it's chaos. And it's chaos on purpose because they don't want the system to work. It's a result of an empowered minority breaking all the rules in its effort to dominate the rest of us. You know, and over at the Supreme Court, Justice Alito claims Honestly, this is not, I'm not making this up. He claims his prejudice against gay Americans is a religious belief and opines that such prejudice is not only constitutionally protected, but it's more important protection than equality under the law. It's an anti-democratic power grab by a power lusty court. Americans are appalled by these things. We are not willing to be ruled by a faction. We're not, I mean, we're determined not to surrender our country by allowing, you know, a portion of it to go away. We've seen that movie before. Look, it won't be enough to win the next election, though when we will. This time, though, we have to work harder to replant the ideas that make democracy possible. It is too dangerous for the most profoundly free people to be the most profoundly ignorant about the sources of our freedom. Look, you guys know this, but it bears repeating. So stick with me um, because I want you to repeat it to others. The foundation of Western democracy, an idea hatched, you know, not so much in ancient Athens, but in Enlightenment Europe, consists of a set of ideas, natural rights, limited government, a social contract, religious toleration, and empirical evidence. These ideas forced their way into the world through the work, you know, not magic, not divine inspiration, but the work of philosophers most Americans, you know, have never heard of. John Locke, Jean Rousseau, Charles Montesquieu, and Thomas Hobbes. 
And here in America, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, they studied those works and they forged a new nation upon what was then new concepts. And since the Civil War, these ideas shaped both conservative and liberal political thinking. The the conservatives focused more on the limited government and the natural rights of property. The more liberals focused on the social contracts um, and natural rights of liberty. The separation of church and state, religious tolerance that results from that, all that went unquestioned. And facts rather than divine inspiration were the basis of our decision making. The right wing in America today has abandoned those foundations and they've reached back to an earlier era, an era that emphasizes divine order and revelation. In their view, the structure of society is dictated not by people working together to find comedy, but not comedy, comedy, um, but imposed from the top. It, it claims this divine authorship for both social structure and the power to enforce it. This is an idea that is ancient and antithetical to democracy. In fact, it's the world that Locke, Rousseau, Hobbes, and over here, Madison and George Washington, they did so much to end. It's the era of unchecked monarchs. And look, in the contemporary version, leaders aren't kings in the sense that they want to be part of a family dynasty, but they they want a similar power, citing inspiration rather than evidence, revelation rather than evidence. They obliterate individual rights and they transform the idea of a liberating social contract into nothing more than a coercive code. <clears throat> okay. That's the sort of philosophy part. But you can see it being played out in Hungary, for instance, in the name of a social order that he says is ordained by God. You know, Hungarian President Viktor Orban has rid the nation of its separation of powers, bringing executive, legislative and judicial authority under his control. He has changed the voting rules to make it nearly impossible for his party to lose. Individual rights are no longer protected as conformity to some idea of a Hungarian people is promoted. His order, just like the one the American right seeks to impose, makes women servants to their husbands, makes gayness a crime, requires the media to spread propaganda. And we have people wanting to do that here. Orban holds nearly unchecked power but he's never had a majority of support among his people. Here at home, where the Republican Party's in power, it imposes its ideas on abortion, on guns, on civil rights, on tax policy, on climate, on wealth, on books, all wildly unpopular. Both Orban and our Republicans, they prioritize their order over our freedom. That's why they don't care for the legitimacy of elections and the rule of law. And like the monarchies of old, for these folks, Governing is about imposing a social order where the ones in charge get to stay in charge. Okay. Uh, With that in mind, two years ago, today, today, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. And that requires our immediate attention. Putin has had, you know, no interest in conquering Ukraine when Viktor Yanukovych was its president. You have to remember that. 
Yanukovych ran a corrupt government in the Russian style where power and order were imposed from the top. The things we've been talking about, the anti-democratic things we've been talking about and businesses paid for favors. And his political strategist was a guy named Paul Manafort, who went on to lead the Trump campaign. Look, only after Yanukovych was booted out by the people in 2014 in a popular revolt that demanded an end to corruption and the ability to hold their leaders accountable. Only then did Putin set in motion his invasion. It's not that Putin lusts after territory so much as he fears democracy. And that's why the war in Ukraine is our fight. Our fight. House Speaker Mike Johnson is refusing to bring to the floor a vote to aid Ukraine because the Republican agenda requires undermining democracy. And he says, look, he's only doing what God told him to do. Seriously? Donald Trump says he can bring peace to Ukraine in five minutes. You know, I don't doubt that. He'd bring that peace by selling them all out. He knows Putin would trade the real estate for a restoration of Yanukovych or somebody like him. The fight for a democratic Ukraine is the same fight we are having right now in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in uh, South Carolina, and in this presidential race. Look, for, for our fates are the same. For, for most of my life, Americans have understood that we have a sacred obligation to fight for freedom when an empowered minority seeks to impose its will, when it is willing to use force and intimidation and coerce submission. Today, one of our major political parties has not only walked away from that obligation, it's gone over to the dark side. We must win. And we must win by large margins. And we must talk about the foundations that make our democracy strong. But you know what? First, we have to demand that the House vote on aid to Ukraine. Call your representative. Raise your voice. Tell them this vote is not just about Ukraine. Tell them it is, as Mr. Lincoln warned us, about whether democracy can long endure. Okay. Um, I appreciate your sticking with me. I hope the sound was okay. We're going to take a break. I have a fabulous show lined up. Um, and, and during the break, I'll fix my uh, microphone. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. I've solved my technical problem. Um, thank you for your patience. You know, um, there are, I, I uh, love this about young men. They, um, you, they forever, and this goes back, you can read it in Plato, they, you know, they get together and they talk about and argue about what their world should look like. Um, you know, sort of the best examples are in you know, Russian literature, actually, in uh, uh, Anna Karenina, when they get to Levin's farm, for those of you who like that stuff, he's there's sort of young men passionately talking about the world, usually over a bottle. Um, and what happens is uh, they learn a lot from each other. And for some, those conversations get, you know, deep in uh, to their souls and they spend the rest of their lives fighting for the countries and the ideas they care about. I was really lucky when I was a young man because one of the guys that I had those conversations with is my next guest. Paul Glastras. He's an old friend. He is the editor in chief of the Washington Monthly. He was a speechwriter for Bill Clinton during his presidency. 
Paul is a passionate advocate of progressive causes and of democracy, and he spent his life um, uh, living those values. Paul, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. My friend, it is uh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I, I, we have a lot to talk about, but before we launch into politics, I spend a minute on the Washington Monthly, which you have uh, uh, been its leader for quite some time, and it occupies a special place in the political media ecosystem. So to talk about that publication and its impact, and then we'll turn to the world we live in. Sure. Thank you. So the Washington Monthly, for those who don't know it, and there are a lot who don't know it, uh, has often been described as like the restaurant where the chefs go to eat. Not well known publicly, but it is read by insiders, journalists, people, you know, public intellectuals like you. Um, and what you get served at the Washington Monthly today will be on the plates of other uh, publications, uh, you know, a week, a month, a year from now. So it's kind of an insider, uh, thought leader publication in the in the terminology. We've been around for 55 years, I think it's been. Mm. Um, I've been running it for about 23 of those years, uh, and it's uh, a magazine of the left, but that is uh, kind of congenitally um, allergic to uh, simple answers either the right or the left, which, you know, it's, it's based on very, very solid reporting, very rigorous thinking, and it's really focused on the guts of government and policy, underlying machinery and trends of politics. It's a little bit less about the horse race, a little bit more about what the campaigns are or should be about. And, uh, you know, for some reason, it's still financially solid and alive. And, you know, uh, much bigger entities have, have come and gone, and we're still here. Did you outlasted Sports Illustrated. Yes, yes, you yeah. know. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, people say, oh, you're going to go – run the Washington monthly. That's uh, so such a big risk. And I thought, well, you know, any job in journalism is a risk. At least, uh, you know, I've got my own ship. So, uh, yeah. And I'm just thrilled, thrilled to be a chance to talk to your audience. I'm up. I lived in Chicago for 13 years and very close to the, to the Midwest where I grew up. Yep. Yep. Hey, one more thing about the monthly before we get to the news and that's you took on a challenge I can't remember how many years ago, decade or more, to sort of um, take on the college ranking system. And, and you know, I, you did it in part because of the values that you have where, you know, it wasn't like, oh, Yale, they've got such a great reputation, but rather what's the value of the education students get? That seems quite spot on these days. Well, yes. So uh, in 2005, we... Uh, put out the first of what became an annual alternative ranking of colleges. And U.S. News and the like measure colleges based on their exclusivity, prestige, and money. We measure colleges based on upward mobility, research, and service to the country. 
um, just a very different value. Imagine that. that. Measuring, <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 we, you know, we come up with very different uh, 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 schools that are on top. A lot of schools you've never heard of do very very well, and a lot of big name schools don't do so well under our metrics. And you know, I think we've had uh, a fair amount of effect on on the way people talk about colleges now. And there's, you know, what we were warning about 20 years ago about high debt and high prices and the elitism that, that has kind of gone rampant is now kind of coming home to roost and people are aware mm-hmm. of it. And, you know, even U.S. News wound up changing their methodology to, to mirror our some extent. Yeah, I just thought it was... Um uh, an example of journalism living its values and, um, uh, you know, sort of remarkable to take on an entrenched incumbent who's well known for something. And you took him on and you made uh, a real difference, real difference. Well, okay, well let- thank you. And, it, you know, it, it was a, I used to work at U.S. News, so they, you know, <laughs> their rankings paid my mortgage for a while. And uh, I thought, it, uh, you know, we ought to kind of whistle on it. Let's turn to um, our own politics. Uh, you, you have an article up right now by Michael Panorzer that goes to the heart of the anti-democratic sentiment on the right. And I thought it was really interesting. Will you talk about that? Sure. So just a little bit on Michael Panorzer. He is a gem of a guy. Um, he ran the the Analyst Institute, which was an attempt on the progressive side to measure, uh, try to bring some rigor to campaigning and polling. And for years, he was a great source for political journalists. And he, he finally left, and now he can write on his own voice. And I'm pleased to have him. And you know, the point that he made in that article, which is up on our website, is that you know. It's it's not accurate, he says, to describe what's happening with um, as sort of a kind of civil war or a or a difference of opinion. You know th- that the the right is not unlike where the the Confederates were uh, back in the middle of the 19th century. In they're questioning the legitimacy of the union, the legitimacy of the federal government. Example would be, you know, um, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, uh, saying that, uh, you know, he does not respect or or acknowledge the the fact that the federal government controls the border. And, you know, he liked the way they're doing it. And so he's going to have the state uh, over. And we're at a kind of loggerhead right now. It's really quite uh, fascinating uh, and scary what's happening. And, uh, you know, what Mike would say is that th- this is not a disagreement. This is a rebellion uh, going back to the continual unwillingness of, uh, of a, a sector of the right to, to um, you know, admit the legitimacy of the national government. And the the crowns on which the fracture has occurred feel similar to me. I'm not saying that this is a fight about slavery. That's not what I'm saying. But the South before the Civil War could not be described as a democracy. Um, 
a huge part of their population not only were enslaved, but they certainly had no citizens' rights. They couldn't vote. It wasn't a democracy. In the North, it was closer to a democracy. Still, women couldn't vote, but it was closer. But the fissure happened over what is a democracy, over who is allowed to say what's going on. I mean, they were happy to be part of the country, those Southerners, as long as they controlled the White House. When they lost it, when Abe Lincoln won, they said goodbye. I feel like it's the same thing with Texas and the others right now, that they that the real root of their argument is they do not believe um, in the sovereignty of the people. Well, they do not believe in the sovereignty of all of the people, that there is a belief on the right that um, the the liberal side of the aisle is bringing in a lot of illegal aliens who then become voters who then dilute the the vote of the of people on the right, and that the the um, policies on the left uh, dilute and are are a counter to the the beliefs on the right. And you know, there's a famous essay um, uh, uh, back in in 2016 that likened the election that year to. Uh, the the flight that went down at at uh, 9/11, where the 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 passengers broke into the cockpit, right? And mm-hmm. th- th- there's a sense of you know imminent doom on the right, and frankly, the same sense or a similar sense on the left. And it, it's it's you know you, both sides are feeling that uh, their view, bossy with each election. Yes, <laughs> uh, I'm feeling that way. But I, Paul, I don't care. I, I don't want everybody to agree with me in my country. I, I'd be enormously boring and we'd get so many things wrong. There's plenty of room for people who have wildly different views on, on the policy solutions That'll move us forward. You know, I can't take questions of poverty in America. The left and the right have very different views about how we should address continuing poverty in America. What's happening now on the right is those questions don't get to be asked. We want to we want to destroy the forum where we can have those debates. And that that terrifies me. And 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 the it you know it it goes back to the delegitimization that has been really part of right wing ideology way before Donald Trump, but that Donald Trump has has mined and molded and made his own. Um, and you know he lost an election and called that election illegitimate. And so the sort of notion that Anything that happens that goes against our interests is not just, you know, you know, we lost one today. We'll come back and play tomorrow. It's an illegitimate force has robbed us of our rightful sovereignty. That's the level at which we're now uh, or at least the right is now um, debating the world. And and, um, you know, (laughs) stood up at at the. CPAC convention, the Conservative Political Action Committee convention uh, yesterday or the day before, and, you know, said 
the quiet part out loud, you know, when we get back into power, democracy will fall um, and, you know, Christ will rule. And, you know, this is not uh, the wide, the widest spread belief on the right. It's not even necessarily a majority belief on the right, but it is a widespread belief on the right. And um, so, you know, liberals have the same fear, but, you know, in a very different way. Yeah, it's an. It may not be widespread on the right, but it is empowered on the right, um, in the way that the the very left part of the Democratic Party is not so empowered. Um, I mean, Joe Biden. No, is, and that's a that's a really you know, important point, Edwin. And I yeah. I hope your listeners understand that um, the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party today is the Republican Party has a very powerful, nearly 50% of the base of the party is moderate, self-identifies as moderate. On the Republican side, it's a much, much smaller percentage. And so the the party cannot, the Democratic Party win if, the, if either the centrists or the far left run the thing. There, there's got to be a negotiation. Um, and that is really the history of the Biden administration. On the right, it, it, there's just nothing like that. It has been going further and further and further to the right. And moderates have been alienated more and more and more. You're just you're just you're just boiling it down to the farthest, uh, you know, uh, extreme on, on the Republican side. Yeah. And again, I can't even call it the right. I mean, in my life, right and left, the right. The right and the left disagreed about policy, but they agreed on the elements of a democracy. And and there is no place for theocracy right and left. I mean, for many years, I've lived and worked in places like Saudi Arabia. They don't have a legislature because the law comes from God. Right. For, mm-hmm. for most of the Middle Ages, there was no legislatures in Europe. The law came from God. It was canon law. And there were courts. Did you violate the law or not? But but why have a legislature when the, when you have divine inspired law right now in the United States? Even if we decided we wanted to have divinely inspired law, and uh, we should not. But even if we did. OK, well, you know what? Americans come with a bunch of different sets of divinely inspired law. Right. I mean, there's canon law. There's uh, there's halacha. There's, you know, uh, I mean, you've got every religion has their own law code. What are we what are we supposed to make of that? Are we, are we just going to become a one religion theocracy in the minds of Mike Johnson? Well, you know, there was always not always, but for, for you know my adult life, there was always that segment on the Republican side. That was theocratic and, you know, successful played to that side. And, you know, my friend Mike Person, the late Washington Post columnist uh, and George W. Bush speechwriter, you know, mm-hmm. over the course of went from, you know, being a firm believer in the rising power of evangelicals in politics and believing that that was a uh, a useful and moral force in American politics to saying, oh, my God, what has happened? Um, and, you know, found found out. I mean, it's a kid guy grew up with in St. Louis, you know, 
very near where I w- grew up, uh, in St. Louis suburbs, who lived his evangelical, you know, values as a as a you know member of the political elite, um, and you know ultimately came to realize that the scope of what he thought he was a part of, you know, overlapped with racism and and anti democracy. And spent the latter years of his life writing against that. So, you know, it was there before, but it's it's, it's morphed into the dominant, in many ways, the dominant force in the Republican Party. Yeah. So let's take a minute and talk about what makes a democracy strong. I mean, you and I've talked about this. I for 40 years when we talk, what are the, like, you you know, I mean, we're not really so much a child of Athens as of enlightenment Europe, but a little of both. I'd certainly like to have an ostracon right now. I think the whole country would vote Donald Trump out (laughs) out of the country. That worked for a while. But um, like, what are the things that we, that people, I don't think Americans really know enough about what democracy is and, and what's holding us together. They just think it's voting. Well, for gosh sake, they're going to hold a vote in Russia soon. It's not a democracy. Voting's important, but it's a peace. Talk about, like, you know, what's, what is it that we should value and, um, and strengthen? Well, you know, I'm going to give you my, my own formulation after years of doing this kind of work. And this is, you know, one man's opinion. It's not, uh, you know, we could spend hours uh, talking about this. But I, I think that there is an American view of democracy that is broadly, if not universally understood, but very seldom described as I'm going to describe it. And that is, if you if you go back to the founding, the extraordinary thing about this country is that there was broad equality of condition. There there were wealthy people like George Washington. There were poor people, in fact, slaves. But at least among white men who were at that time, uh, you know, the citizenry, the acknowledged citizenry, the voting citizenry, um, the gap between the poorest white man and the richest white man was not that great compared to most of Europe. In fact, it, you know, if you, it was about the United States in the 1950s. There were CEOs and there were, you know, day laborers, but they, they, they felt themselves to be citizens of the same country and their conditions were so different. And uh, the founders thought that was the ground by which healthy democracy, a healthy republic could be based. And part of the reason they felt that is that a person who didn't have any kind of means, especially independent means, who, whose, whose income was dependent on somebody else, who, who was, uh, didn't have time to read, to have leisure, to think, to discuss, like you and I as young men, you so wonderfully described earlier, um, that they could not be good citizens. Their understanding of a successful country was one where people had the means to have the leisure and to be active in their communities and their country as citizens. 
And what's happened in this country in the last, and that was the country I kind of was born into. I remember that country. That's, that was the, the, the country of my father and your father. In the last, you know, few decades, we've seen this massive uh, expansion of inequality, uh, of, of power flowing to a handful of mega wealthy, of um, families having to work, both, both spouses work endless hours just to make, um, just to make, you know, the rent and the decision making being pulled away from communities and the wealth being pulled away from communities into large corporations and a handful of big metro areas. And, and we've kind of robbed the country of their independence, their independent incomes, and their voice. And people are, they may not be able to formulate it the way I did, but I think the anger and the fury out there on both the right and the left is this sense of we don't have a voice. Um, we don't have the basics that we need to get by. And this can't be what, you know, what it's all about. This can't be right. And they're correct. And the founders would have seen it, I believe. That's really interesting. So part of the the way you you painted that picture requires that people have the time to think about these issues a little bit and that and the um the 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 means to have the time but i guess that goes um in the same bucket as the same founders who said and you know what you also have to have public education which we're going to make uh, uh available everywhere it was written into the you know into the uh, northwest territories act that we'd have space set out for public schools, in part to um, help citizens have those conversations. Yes, yes. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson's great, great um, uh, line, if, if I could have democracy or newspapers, I'd choose the latter. Um, you know, the, the belief that ed, an educated citizenry is the only bulwark against authoritarianism was more or less I don't want to say universal among the founders, but it was a bedrock view of the founders. Certainly Jefferson and Madison and, uh, you know, to, to some extent, Adams and Washington. And, and um, there and, you know, involvement did mean everybody gets to run for Congress. Involvement meant from top to bottom, citizens are engaged and they can make their voice felt and have a place in the local economy as the local politics. And so you're talking about, we've lost a lot of entrepreneurship and independent businesses everywhere in this country. Those independent businesses that used to advertise in the local newspapers, which have now disappeared. And, you know, people are left getting their information from, you know, national news sites and Facebook and various weird, you know, Russian bots and buying their goods and services from giant faceless monopolies in, in you know, distant cities. And they're just alienated from the community, alienated from their 
ways of making a living. They're they're disempowered as citizens, disempowered as producers and workers. And uh, it's been going on a long time. And the yeah. beauty is, Edwin, we ha- we went through this before a hundred years ago, right? In, in the in the Gilded Age, and over the course of many decades, we fixed the problem, right? We had the Progressive Era, we had the the New Deal, and we 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 moved the country back to where it it, it, it to some semblance of its founding, and we can do it again. But boy, it's an uphill battle. Yep. I mean, the the economy that we've been in for a while is a winner-take-all economy. That's why um, it goes with the erosion of antitrust enforcement. Um, Absolutely. And and there's a, you know, there's a famous article in the 1990s about whether Michael Jordan should mow his grass, whether that was an efficient use of his time. Um, right. As opposed, right? Where, where could the most money be made? And and that has been the way the country has thought, and it has concentrated wealth and power and communication um, in, in fewer and fewer hands. So that that's a huge danger that you're talking about. So let's let's say with that as background, um, I, Democrats are afraid. I looked at Ezra Klein's. Um, uh, piece about Joe Biden where he worries that he's too old. The article says Joe Biden's been a great president. He's just, you know, he's, he's in a panic that we're going to get our clock clean because, um, because he's not as young and vigorous as he once was, which is not in dispute. But he says he's been a great president and still he's worried. I think Democrats have been hit over the head too many times because I'm not as so worried because I know how determined we are, but I'd love you to make the case. What's the case, you know, for that we that we are addressing those problems that you talked about, and that we are on a better path, and we should stay the course? Well, you know, you mentioned there's a lot there. Let me just start. Uh, you mentioned antitrust, right? The, the the one of the greatest mistakes that has been made in our lifetimes. Um, it, it was you know made by a little older generation than ours, but it, 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 you know, and ours is beginning to fix it. And that is allowing uninterrupted uh, mergers and acquisitions to the point that, all, you know, more than half of, of all markets in the United States are highly concentrated in a handful of companies and hedge funds and banks and so forth. Um, and, Paul, stop and, there one second. Hold one second on that. For anybody listening, if you go to the grocery store and look at the cereal aisle, that's what Paul is talking about. You see a thousand boxes of cereal, right? And you think, oh, there's price competition. They're all owned by the same companies. So that's, you yes. know, yes. so price goes up because of that. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. 80, 90 percent of the beer is owned by companies. You know, you think, yeah. oh, choices, uh, eyeglasses, uh, 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 in almost every realm. Um, And from basic economic theory, that competition in markets is how you police supply and demand, quality, and so forth. You need a government oversight, but what you really need are rules focused to be these and for workers to have plentiful uh, employers that they can play one on off against the other to get a better wage of it. All of these things, these open markets are key to our economic prosperity and freedom. And so, so, but what president took on the, the, the monopolist more than any Joe Biden, 
Um, he's really done a, a, a remarkable uh, revolution in how the federal government uh, deals with mergers and and. You know, this is 40, 50 years in the making. It's going to take a generation to undo it, but it has started under Joe Biden. Um, so that's just one example of uh, sort of things people don't quite understand about Joe Biden. He's kind of a moderate guy, and he's kind of a, a little bit of a get-along, go-along. He's actually um, presiding over a sea change in economic policy, um, which, by the way, is not – uh, leagues different than 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 uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump came into office and started um, engaging his administration in antitrust actions too. It's just the problem with Donald Trump is he had to go after him, like you know Ty Warner. It, it became a personal vendetta rather than the application of you know uh, blind law. But, uh, look, this is going to be a very close election. I think that is a fair statement. Um, And we don't know who's going to win the presidency. But I do think there is a lot more strength on the Democratic side than Democrats realize, and a lot more weakness on the Republican side than Republicans realize. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm by the panic, um, the depth of the on the Democratic side. And, you know, I, I read Ezra's, uh, his, you know, uh, uh, his interview and his theories. And, um, uh, you know, you can make the argument that Joe Biden, after the 2022 midterm victory, for the good of the country should have said, I am passing the torch to a new generation. I'm not running for reelection. Um, I'm not sure that I agree with that. I still think he's probably the strongest candidate the Democrats have, even with his age. Um, but, you know, if there was a time to do it, that was time to do it. Um, now, the idea that you can open up the process and get a good result for the Democrats, I, I just think it's madness. And, um, you know, to follow Ezra, you, it's a three cushion shot uh, that he's he's talking about, and the risks of opening up the process now. You know, all the, the the candidates likely to win uh, that process are people like Kamala Harris, who is the sitting vice president, who's got lower you know ratings than Joe Biden. I just, you know, I think we have the, the Democrats have the candidate have. And this kind of, you know, um, uh, kabuki, you know, uh, debating about, you know, ways that they can get the is uh, uh, kind of a waste of time and uh, probably for for the country. Well, it, it, why do people have to try and say he's been a great president, but that's not enough? I mean, it would be sufficient if. If the folks who watch it say he's been a great president instead of saying he's been a great president, but you know what, for the good of the country, you should step aside. That just sounds like what, like we don't put the things we care about first. I think he's doing a fabulous job. I mean, you're, I mean, the antitrust is one of those areas where you talk about um, environment, pretty much another one. There are lots of them. I think he's been a great president. 
I don't. Yeah, well, I don't just look at the economy. It's an extraordinary right? economy. And look, I think that people are freaked out, and I understand this, and to some extent, I share it. Um, how can the economy be getting better? To the point where you know, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, CNBC are hailing it, and Biden, Joe Biden, the, the public uh, belief in public support of Joe Biden's economic policies is going down. Right? Those two things are true. There does disconnect between underlying yeah. reality and people's. Um, you know, the public opinion. And I think it's freaking. I, th- I, I think it, if the polls were a little different, I think people would, you know, give him, you know, give more credence to the underlying facts. But, um, you know, the, the, I don't think it's crazy for people to be panicking, put it that way. But I also oh, think, yes. you know, you know, the idea that they're going to going to somehow conjure up a different candidate is, it, you know, this is the candidate Democrats have, and they better figure out how to get him over the finish line. I totally agree with that, Paul. But I also don't think the candidate is the reason why he's not getting credit for doing these remarkable things. I think it's an underestimation of the of the news and media ecosystem that we live in, where most Americans don't read a newspaper, don't watch TV news. They get something on their news feed, maybe in uh, uh, if they're older in Facebook or something else. And that feed is flooded with trash from bots, some of which are not, you know, they're, they're foreign um, that want to tear us apart. I don't know that anybody else could stand there and say, look, I haven't done as good a job as Joe Biden has done because I haven't been here. Um, they're going to face the same outrageous lies coming at them in their news feeds. I don't know why anybody thinks that would be a better answer. I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, the uh, uh, the, the governor of uh, of uh, Michigan um, is a Gretchen Whitmer. Governor awesome. Gretchen Whitmer. Awesome. Yeah. I've seen her speak. She's very, very good. She's got a great record. She didn't preside over and and didn't govern over the country over the last four years. And the idea that she could just slip in and, you know, I'm sure she would come in with 55, 60 percent approval ratings. You know, eight weeks later, the combination of the mainstream press and the right wing press, she'd be down in the 40s. Um, That is just the way the system works on politicians right now. Yeah, I, and and particularly on Democrats because so much of the news system is. I mean, you, you're talking on the radio with me, but ninety percent of talk radio in America is very different, and they're hearing something well, very, yeah, very different. We have we have we have three different media ecosystems. Um, the biggest is the mainstream media ecosystem, and it, you know, you can you can certainly accused of having a certain amount of liberal bias in its story choices and the people who work there, but it is not an arm of the Democratic Party by any means. Um, it, you know, it, it behaves by a completely different set of, of values. Um, then you have the right-wing media system, which is a self-enclosed largely arm of certainly the conservative movement, but, but, you know, as much the Republican party and now 
Donald Trump. And then you have the liberal media system, which is, you know, my magazine, your radio show, yeah. uh, MSNBC. And that's like 2%. That's nothing. Yeah, There's, nothing. There really isn't in this world an equivalent of the right-wing media. The right-wing media right, so- is a... Is a it's just, it's just a hugely powerful thing, and it's not countered by the mainstream media. That's just that's a, that's a myth. Which which is, brings me back to, I think people who think Joe Biden's not getting the credit he deserves, somebody else could do it, and they're blaming Joe Biden for it, and they're saying maybe maybe if he were younger he could get the credit. None of that's true. He's not getting the credit because of the lies that people are hearing in enormous gushers coming from the right all the time. Look, let me give you an example. It's not just the right. I agree. But but look at the issue of student debt. Um, Biden was uh, kind of manured into agreeing to vast student debt forgiveness in the 2000 primaries. To, in order to kind of secure the flank of the Democratic Party. And he committed himself to trying, and he put out a, 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 a policy that got overturned by the Supreme Court. As everyone would, it was never going to happen. Any honest person knew that. But the groups that formed around the fury of young people and who had enormous debts and felt that those debts, and rightly so, those debts were much higher than their parents and grandparents had to, you know, were burdened by. They wanted their debt forgiveness. Joe Biden tried, didn't succeed, and the groups just piled on to Biden and said, you've got to try harder. Do the same thing and lose again, basically. And he produces a handful, not a handful, but six or seven different policies, the main one being something called the SAVE program. That is now, and it is enormously successful. It is sweeping. Everybody gets it. But people of modest means are getting their debts forgiven. People who are, um, you know, making decent money burdened are getting their debts um, made much more uh, palatable, smaller. And it's really a spectacular success. But the progressive groups are giving no credit for it. And nobody's ever heard of it. Okay? And the press is about debt forgiveness. But when it gets to the kind of the, the complications of the policy itself, they're bored. They don't, they don't write about it. So nobody knows that Joe Biden has more or less solved the student debt problem. He really has. He's more or less solved. It's a brilliant policy. Nobody knows about it. So, so I, I, I think you're – you're totally right. Uh, you're totally correct. <laughs> Sorry. The, you, the, you get this bunch of lies from one side. And then on the, on the left, it's just like, what have you done for me lately? And I'm angry. And I, I want to yeah. say to my younger self, because that's what much of the left is, your anger will burn us all down to the ground. Be smart. Yeah. Be smart. Yeah. Look, 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 look at the difficulty is having. And I don't want to get deeply into the uh, Israel Gaza situation, um, but just to point out, you know, previous to Joe Biden, for supporting, you know, basically having the same position that every president for, you know, decades has had, um, and you know, when he's fired, 
person in the world who succeeded in delivering a ceasefire. It was temporary, but it was a real and getting hostage out. Biden. He got he got a several week ceasefire. Hostages were freed. Humanitarian aid came in, and uh, uh, you know if you think that he has the ability to dictate terms on the ground in Israel, you don't understand how the world works. But he got, especially in Michigan, um, among young people and Arab Americans, Palestinian Americans, this movement to uh, threaten. Uh, Votes him in the primary, send a signal. If he loses Michigan in the general, um, that's it. It's President Trump again. And uh, yeah, and those Palestinians will be deported. So it's just phenomenally self defeating. Yes, exactly. And look, this is interest group politics. This is that ethnic group politics. You and I, a lot of time in Chicago, we know that this is just part of American. You know, it needs to be managed. There's nothing crazy or evil or bad about it. But but it, it is it is a uh, management campaign political uh, 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 challenge for the Democrats right now and for Joe Biden. Paul, we are um, approaching the end of our time here. Um, it's so great to catch up. It's so great to. To, to know that you're out there, that you have managed to t- be in the publishing world for, you know, a quarter of a century or more and been successful with, you know, with the Washington Monthly when Mighty Time Magazine or Sports Illustrated have all, you know, died. You, you've you managed to produce something of great value that people need to read. So uh, uh, Make a pitch so the people who are listening can know where to find it and sign up and support it. Yeah, WashingtonMonthly.com. Look, sign up for our weekly, our thrice a week uh, newsletter. You'll get it directly sent to you. We are also on Substack. You can, uh, we we have a print that you can sign up for. It's nineteen ninety five. Love for you to do it. But if at the very least, come take a look at it. If you like it, sign up for our newsletter. All right, Paul. Thank you so much for the time today. It was a pleasure, Edwin. Anytime. All right. All right, everybody. We're going to take a break for the news. Um, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, how government actually works with Don Moynihan. Um, you've met him before. I'll reintroduce him at the other side of the commercial. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, um, Chris Geidner is back. He joins us again. He is, of course, a journalist who has spent uh, all his attention and time studying the, the courts, the law. Uh, his uh, very much quoted Substack uh, uh, adventure is called Law Dork, and I strongly urge you to sign up for the newsletter. Um, it should not be that so much of our democracy is in the hands of the judiciary, but that's where we are. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Hi, Chris. Hello. How are you doing, Adeline? I'm, I'm going to ask your forgiveness uh, right here at the top. I am so angry with the Supreme Court and with the, uh, the, the capture of the judiciary more generally that I am bound to overstep in my questions. So please... You know, when I'm wrong, rein me right back in. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the reasons you're so busy right now is that the 
the court, the starting the Supreme Court, we'll get to Alabama soon enough, but it's engaged in an unprecedented power grab, claiming authority it really shouldn't have, making, you know, rulings that aren't based on precedent or stare decisis. And it isn't just the current court, it's the Roberts court in general from its inception. The idea that he thought he knew better than Congress about money and politics is just, you know, outrageous judicial hubris. And and now they feel like Sam Alito can actually write that his bigotry should be protected as a religious right more more important than equality before the law. And now they want to eviscerate the other two branches of government by saying that, you know, uh, Congress can't ask the executive branch to do rulemaking. Like, where does it stop? How do we stop it? What 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 are we really looking at here? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, tell me I'm wrong. You've, Please. Summed, you, you've summed up a lot of the problems and uh, we are sort of in, in a point right now of, of, um, I mean, basically you're, we're, we're in a position right now where we either see that um, public response to the court has the ability to moderate its decisions or we make changes to the court or we lose. Like, those are the three options. Um, Either the court continues to to go further right, um, we are able to force the court into moderating itself or we change the court. Like th- those are, those are the three options. Well, I mean, I don't even understand the institution at what it means it, in, in, in America since our founding, there's been a process and in, in Britain before there's been a process of jurisprudence and it requires uh, you follow precedent or you have some respect for precedent. Um, you you let the facts and the law guide you. But now we're in a place like medieval Europe or like 1960, uh, 1973 Saudi Arabia, where it's revelation that guides you. And then why have a legislature at all? Because the law comes from God. I mean, this this Alabama decision. It isn't. It, it should be immediately obvious that, that that the Supreme Court would say that that is unconscionable drivel has nothing to do with the law. But that's not obvious that they would do that. This court. Well, I mean, the the the. I mean, the problem with the Alabama Supreme Court decision. I mean, one one of the problems with the Alabama Supreme Court decision is without Roe, your 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 question comes down to what what is your your um, what even is your federal argument like how how do you yeah. get that decision right. into federal court because that that was obviously a a, a a state supreme court's interpretation of the state supreme court constitution the state constitution and the state's wrongful death statute and the state's uh, history in terms of how much it values common law versus other things. Like they, there, there wasn't any, the decision itself wasn't based on any federal constitutional right or any federal statute. So unless a federal right is infringed, there's no way to, to 
bring the case into federal Of course court. you're right. I, I've, I didn't think about that. And of course you're right. So what was unleashed by Roe, by, by Dobbs in overturning Roe, by saying there is no federal right, then you let state courts do what they do. And some of these state courts have been captured by by some bizarre theocracy. Yeah, we, we see, I mean, what, what I wrote yesterday is that we're seeing state Supreme Courts that are able to go uh, as far as they want to go. I mean, the, the thing, the fact of the matter is that, that Alabama does, and we, we saw this in the, the IBF decision, the, the, the state has a, a long history of, of basically trying to um, protect um, basically pr- pr- protect what they view as life starting at conception as as much as they can. Um, now, of course, prior to uh, June 22, that was limited by Roe. And so they could say whatever they wanted in their constitution and law, but they would only be able to to act as far as Roe would let them. And so that's why they did things like focused on uh, wrongful death lawsuits and focused on um, they, they, they were one of the states that had some of the most harsh uh, policing of pregnancy under Roe. And it had to do with they, they would uh, bring criminal penalties based on uh, women and other pregnant people who uh, might have been engaged in drug use during pregnancy. And so they, they got around Roe as much as they could, even under Roe. But once you get rid of Roe, they don't even have that in their way. And so they've got this sanctity of, of, uh, of life amendment. They've got uh, this wrongful death um, interpretation of their wrongful death suit. They've got this uh, criminal homicide law that includes uh, pre, uh, pre-birth uh, deaths. They, they, they are able to then push that. And what they did in this IVF ruling was say, well, that includes their, I mean, they sort of flipped it on its head by saying that the, that the the defendants at these IVF clinics were asking for an exception to the wrongful death suit for in vitro in vitro fertilization as opposed to in utero, whereas the defense like sort of like took took them to task on that and were like, well, that's not what they're asking for. They're not asking for an exception. That's something different. Uh, I mean, and, and I don't know if you've been online uh, this, this week, uh, but like one of the, the memes going around was like, if you put a, a child in a freezer, you would go to jail and right. the child would not live. If you put right. an embryo in a freezer, that's where it's supposed to go <laughs> under well, IPF. <laughs> Right. Modern technology and medieval revelation don't live very comfortably together. And um, the the chaos this ruling will unleash 
I mean, will these embryos vote in 18 years? You know, is Alabama going to say, you know what, they count towards the census. We need an extra we need an extra congressional district. I mean, it's just insane where this when you try and figure out where this goes. But having a body of law and jurisprudence that works is is actually not something the right seems to care about anymore at our great peril. Well, I mean, it it is a a repeat of of something that I'm sure we've talked about before, but I I don't particularly recall um, that that the, the whole idea of a legal system is to create stability. It's to create a, an expectation for the citizenry, for the government, for public officials on how we are supposed to act, how we are supposed to live, how we are supposed to operate in with respect to one another throughout our lives. And if you take that system and sort of the, the elements you've talked about already today, like if, if you get rid of uh, respect for precedent, if you get rid of sorry decisis, if you get rid of, um, if, if you enable uh, extreme lawsuits to that, that would have been just like tossed out in the past to get attention and even respect from a judge here or there, you, you sort of upend the system and nobody knows what to do. I mean, think about how we dealt. I mean, it was a little basically last year at this time when this Mr. Friscoe lawsuit started getting on everybody's mm-hmm. radar. Mm-hmm. And we we really from from the time that lawsuit got attention through when the Supreme Court put everything on stay for the time being in eight, late April, we we really thought. I mean, there were these discussions going on around like, okay, well, are we able to like, will medication abortion be as uh, as successful and as safe and as accessible if we can only use mifepristone or uh, the the second drug? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm blinking on the name. There's mifepristone, yep, yep. and then. The last one ends with P-R-O-L, but I forget the the beginning of it. And like, yeah, I mean, and I mean, that that is not how a legal system should work. That is not how people should be organizing their lives. That that all of a sudden a person in New York thought that a random district court judge in Texas might try to make it so that we couldn't have Mifepristone in New York. And and he tried. I mean, that was under his under Matt Kaczmarek's ruling. If you recall, he wanted the FDA's approval of Mifepristone to be put on hold. Right. And any continued. sensible, right? Any sensible system of jurisprudence, uh, anyone through most of my life would have put an end to that on, uh, immediately. Um, instead well, of prolonging, and, and I worry. In, in I worry. fairness, in fairness, that one, that 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 ruling went so far that even even those who aren't reasonable, even the Fifth Circuit said that that was too right. Far. <laughs> That's right. That's I right. Mean, I mean, I just worry if that you, the, if you didn't have if you didn't have a Supreme Court that was allowing 
things as far as they have, a judge like Matt Kaczmarek wouldn't have even tried that. That's the problem. That's, that's exactly That's one right. of the real problems. Yeah, this Supreme Court has undermined the rule of law by um, by politicizing the rule of law. And this is this is fundamental to human freedom. And they have they've they've they have it's terrifying to me, Chris. It's absolutely terrifying. I mean, it it, it isn't good. And um, and it, and, it, and it could get worse. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the, the problem. I mean, Let's t- t- tell I, everybody I, what's going to happen to the government's ability to do its job when they toss the Chevron doctrine. T- to talk about the ability to regulate and what that means. I mean, I think, honestly, I, I, here's one part where I will pull you back a little. Like, we, we don't, I mean, one, we don't know what the decision is. There, there, there were a lot of options discussed in that argument. There are a lot of directions things could go. We don't know exactly what is going to happen with, uh, with, with, with the Chief Justice, with Justice Barrett, um, pro- possibly with Justice Kavanaugh, depending on, on how he's feeling that week. And I, I think that, um, but I, I think that we will have some some more freedom, at least, for courts to to sort of second guess agency decisions. And the mm-hmm. problem with with that, regardless of how far it goes, is that government does so much more now than when federal agencies were starting to do their work that. And, and and there's so much more expertise involved because, like, the world is more complicated. Um, and, and when when you – the whole idea of agency deference is that there are complicated things that neither Congress nor the judiciary are qualified to decide – and that it's really great that we have an executive branch that can have permanent, quasi-permanent employees, not political employees, who are become experts in these various areas, whether it be the environment, whether it be the the uh, the tax code, whether it be uh, labor law, whether it be the, the Securities and Exchange Commission, whether it be enforcing the ADA, whatever whatever it is, we we have these these multitude of functions and tasks that 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 we need to decide how the law is being interpreted and how it's being implemented uh more importantly and these agencies have developed expertise and congress has said you figure out how we can best accomplish these congressional goals that we have told you we want to accomplish agencies put these rules in effect and start implementing it and what the rule has been for since the 80s is that if the either if the regulation is clear and the agency does if the law is clear and the agency does what the law says or if the if the law is ambiguous 
and the agency reasonably interprets that law with its uh, approach to it, then the courts say, go ahead. The, the only time that the courts pull back under Chevron is if the law is unambiguous and the agency didn't follow the unambiguous law, or if the law is ambiguous and the agency's interpretation of the law was unreasonable. If you get rid of that and the law, the courts can just like go in and determine for themselves what the law is, we're going to have these arguments. You, you've probably listened to some of them where it's clear that the justices don't know in depth what's actually going on under this law. They have an idea of the regulations. They have an idea of the issues. But but they couldn't go into the the nitty gritty of a 125 page report on the Clean Air Act and point out, oh, this is the key provision. This is the key finding. This is the key determination that we need to make. But if you get rid of Chevron, they would be deciding that. Right. So, Chris, this goes to my very first and biggest um complaint about the Roberts court. I, the, in this system, they would be creating for themselves the power to do things that, as you pointed out, they have no competence to do. But they would be saying the structure of government is such that we, the at the end of the day, the Supreme Court, gets to decide everything. And that I mean, was never... A great, here's a great... Here's a great test for your audience, a great, a great chance for everybody... This week, on on Monday, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing arguments over these these cases involving uh, the the Texas and uh, the the Texas and Florida social media restrictions. And watch as we have these arguments and watch the way that the justices discuss the Internet, discuss social media, discuss what the impact of these restrictions are. And then you decide if you want them making every decision about every law's Every ambiguity in every law that every agency is interpreting, you want the Supreme Court to be making those decisions on what the right answer is, even not not whether the agency is making a reasonable uh, approach to the law, but, but wanting the Supreme Court to dive into every issue and decide yep. whether they think the approach is right. Yeah, I think it's terrible. Even if they got even if I even if I conceded that by some miracle they could be right most of the time, I think it's an incredible uh danger to a democracy when you put all that power well, in one forget place. Even, forget about I mean, yeah, like I I I'm not gonna disagree, I'm not even gonna like push back on that. But like putting aside the danger of this, just think about like functionally. Like if you get rid of Chevron, if you get rid of Chevron, then courts at all levels are going to have to actually delve into all of these issues and and make their determination of of what 
what what is the right answer? Because that's another yeah. thing. If you have this deference, then yep. then courts don't need to go that far in depth. They need to they need to see if government's doing things like reasonably. And and like honestly, when you've got a government as big as we have, that's all the courts should be doing. Yep. Uh, all right, Chris. Let's let's talk a little bit about Mr. Trump and his cases. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, we only we only had a few minutes left here, and and these are pretty big. And I, you know, again, they were very quick to hear uh, uh, Colorado's Fourteenth Amendment case. Um, I know they haven't decided yet, but it sure looks like they will. Um, but they've, I think, been a little slower to talk about whether he has, you know, the sort of even more outrageous, he has immunity from everything. What's going on? Why can't they just say, yeah, you know what, we don't even need to take that? Or, um, I, okay, we'll take it, but we're going to hurry up. Yeah, I, I think that. I think we're we're now verging on sort of a, a danger zone around that. Um, I mean, I had I had been saying that like that that the end of this week, so yesterday the twenty third was sort of the the ideal window for a Supreme Court response. I mean, because this, this is a, a, a I mean, as you said, a weighty issue, and like if if they are to decide that they're not going to take the case like they 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 that that is a big decision like it, it, i i agree with you that that could be the right decision because the the dc circuit opinion is is very clear and correct um but but deciding to do that is a weighty decision and they only finished the briefing i think on on what on thursday last week um and so it would make sense to me that like it it went through two uh conferences before they 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 ruled um and they did have oral arguments on tuesday and wednesday and and technically and monday was a holiday i mean yeah they're the justice they should be able to work but like let's let's even give them that um, and, and so I, I, I do understand why um, it would take till till this week. Um, I do think that if they were going to grant the case and grant it on an expedited basis, we would have heard on Friday. Um, because that, that is when we traditionally, like, once they get out of conference, once they're able to, like, put together the order, like, the technical, like, putting it together, if they have a question presented that they're changing, like, that normally we've gotten them on Friday afternoon. That's when we got, like, the, the, uh, the Colorado order. That's when mm-hmm. we got the mm-hmm. Idaho uh, abortion uh, emergency room order. Um, we we get those on Friday afternoons. Um, and so if they were going to be taking the case and taking it on an expedited basis, I do think we would have gotten that Friday afternoon. If we didn't get it, I still think we're in, well, we didn't get it. So I still think we're in the window of a possibility of them denying the stay and somebody writing a dissent. Um, I think we could still get that this week. Um, if we don't get it this week, if we don't get something this week, I, I am starting to get 
very worried about what's going on. Um, I would question, I mean, whether, I mean, even if you take aside the DOJ's or the special counsel's position that if they don't, uh, Grant, if they don't grant the, if, if they don't deny the stay, they should grant cert and, and grant expedited review and just put it as like Trump's request for a stay. Like we're not, if it get, if we get to the end of next, this coming week, if we get into March without an order on that stay request, we're, we're getting into a longer turnaround than we would expect from normal shadow docket rulings. And so that would start to get worrying that they, that, that sort of the worst case scenario of them just like taking advantage of the fact that the D.C. Circuit said there will be a stay of the mandate in place until they rule on an application for a stay. And they take advantage of that until they actually get like Trump's regular cert petition uh, in in a month or so. And that would be that would be really disturbing. Well, I think the Supreme Court, as I as I've said before on other occasions, I don't know if I've said it to you. I, I live in Chicago. Our city council is um, has a history of it's, the you know, there have been more indictments coming out of the Chicago City Council <laughs> than any legislative body in America. And yet the Supreme Court is less popular than the Chicago City Council. And that should tell John Roberts something. Well, the the Chicago City Council at least does have elections regularly. Elections, and we and 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 you know what they do their jobs. I mean, they they may give a little graft on the side, but the garbage gets picked up. They do what they're supposed to do. They don't claim imperial power to like tell us all what to do. Very frustrating. Well, Chris, um, we've run out of time, and as usual, fascinating to hear your perspective on all of this. um, I'm only sorry you didn't tell me I was completely wrong. Um, we're going to have to keep talking. I mean, we need a rule of law. We need solid jurisprudence. You cannot have a democracy without it. And I yeah. am very worried. And so thank you for your work. Um, for everybody listening, it's Law Dork. Find it on Substack. Sign up. It's um, uh, priceless right now. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You bet. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. And um, uh, when we come back, as I promised, uh, Don Moynihan will be next. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, welcome back. And um, as I told you before the break, Donald Moynihan is back with us. He is uh, the inaugural chair of the um, – the McCourt chair of the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. He co-directs the Better Government Lab. His research is on efficiency of government. And he, um, you know, he writes this newsletter that asks the question, can we still govern? He has a, a social media presence that is um, um, smart, but fun. Um, and I think hides the fact that he is an unbelievable scholar whose work has found its way into um, uh, the better operation of our government. Um, pretty remarkable career. Anyway, welcome back. Thanks so much. Thanks for such nice words, Edwin. 
you, um, I want to talk to you about a bunch of things, including your sort of recent argument uh, in favor of IRS modernization, in part because of the question it poses at the end. And maybe we should actually start with that as dry as it sounds for people. But, you know, um, funding the IRS is enormously politically fraught these days. Um, and I wonder if you could explain, you know, why it's important. And, um, and then that question you ask at the end, which is, can we rebuild the capacity of our government when one party opposes it? I'd sort of like to get towards that question. But first, th- just this issue of the IRS is actually fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, very few people love the IRS. It is our least popular federal agency, according to polls. Uh, at the same time, we all have a shared interest in trying to make sure that the IRS functions. Uh, for one thing, uh, we want to make sure that we're paying our taxes. Other people are not skipping out on their responsibilities. Um, and number two, as citizens, we, you know, sometimes have to call the IRS, sometimes have to interact with the agency. And in those situations, we want our calls to be answered and we want a decent customer service. Um, and what's been happening over the last decade or so is the IRS has really been starved for resources. It lost about 13% of its employees. The number of people it serves keeps going up, and we keep asking it to do more complicated things. Um, and so there's a mismatch between the resources it has and the job that we ask it to do. Um, and one of the changes that we saw with the Inflation Reduction Act is basically new money for the IRS, uh, about a hundred, uh, sorry, about $80 billion. Um, and that sounds like a lot, and it's, you know, it's not a trivial amount of money, uh, but that's over the course of a decade. Um, and that should be, I think, a, a, a down payment on modernizing a core aspect of government. And th- there's some good news. Uh, one thing is that based on estimates, this will pay for itself uh, multiple times over. Every dollar we invest in the IRS is going to cover its own costs because it's going to raise revenues from people who are not paying their taxes. Um, and we're already seeing real improvements in customer service. So they, you know, there was a um, increase in something like 87% in phone calls answered. So you can actually get through to a human being now in a way that you probably couldn't have done a couple of years ago. Um, so that you know that's real progress. Uh, you have an agency that had some difficulty, was not working terribly well, and then uh, get some resources, and it's actually starting to turn things around. The question you referred to at the end is. This is good news, but can this be sustained when all of this is driven by the Democratic Party and where the Republicans have fought this tooth and nail and every opportunity they get, they're trying to claw that money back from the IRS and make it less and less effective as an agency? Well, what's the answer? How do I mean, how do we convince Americans? From my perspective, most Americans pay their federal income tax in, out, of, out of their paycheck. Their employer takes it out of the paycheck, sends it to the federal government. Their entire interaction comes when they file at the end of the year and ask for, for their overpayment to be returned to them. 
right? That's not complicated, but you want, if you paid too much, you want it back. The real fancy guys with 800 tax lawyers and, and hiding everything requ- require a lot of auditing and apparently are not paying their fair share. So, so you invest in the IRS. Those of us who've had the money just taken out of our paychecks, we get it back more quickly. We get it back. If we have a problem, we can ask about it. And the guys who are cheating get caught. Why is that not obvious to people? Yeah, um, I mean, we'll, this is the time of the year I'm, I'm going to be doing my taxes this weekend and mm-hmm. you know, pulling together all of that information. But you're right. For most of us, you know, the, the system works where our employer has taken the money out of our paycheck. Uh, we don't have a bunch of partnerships that we can move money around to reduce our tax liability. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think it's, it's sort of a winning message if you can say we're going to make sure that the IRS is going to provide customer good customer service for everyone and is going to make everyone pay their fair share and cut down on tax sheets. That seems like a, a compelling message. And, and you know, it's, it's a message that should be clear because, again, the, the theory that Republicans are running on here doesn't really hope, hold up to much scrutiny. Um, they, 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 you know, they like to talk about these 87,000 armed agents that are coming to your house. Uh, but the reality is that the tax enforcement is going to go towards higher income earners, the people who, you know, if you audit them, you actually will get something back. And it's it's important to note that is a that is a bit of a change, right? Um, up to relatively recently, about a third of all audits went towards people who were earning less than twenty thousand dollars, which purely from a revenue perspective is is ridiculous. The focus of Congress was if you're getting the earned income tax credit, which is a welfare credit you get if you're working, uh, we want to make sure you're not cheating on that. And so they pushed IRS to do more audits of poorer people. But from a revenue perspective, that's crazy because, you know, there just is not that much money there. Whereas if you're moving hundreds of millions of dollars around, and the IRS has some good stories on its on its website of people who are you know engaged in pretty blatant tax fraud, getting a team of people who can tackle their accountants and their lawyers and figure out what they're up to, um, it requires more effort, but it's going to have a bigger payoff. And I, I do think that is a better story to tell. We're going after these richer tax sheets, and we're going to make the system fairer for everyone by not having this sort of two-lane system where, you know, one group has uh, tax lawyers and accountants that makes paying taxes sort of semi-voluntary, and everyone else just sees that money go out of their paycheck every month. Yep, and and, and yet we have uh, this is a partisan issue now, where one party does not want that to happen. Um, so I guess I'm going to ask you that same question, not just about the workings of government, the capacity, the IRS, as you say, it's a pretty clear question. And now it's a becomes a political question, right? Um, <clears throat> there, there are lots of issues of government capacity to do its job that are that way. But I want to ask you the same question about the form of government. I'm I'm worried that 
the separation of powers, for instance, um, uh, can't endure when one party questions it. Um, the ideas of, you know, that, that are sort of basic to all Western democracy of, of a social contract, of religious toleration, of empirical evidence, of limited government even, natural rights, all of these things are now partisan. What does that do for the, I mean, it, it can, can government survive and function in an environment like that? question this is this is i think maybe the biggest change in american politics and governance in the last 20 years is that you have one party that you know always had some uh libertarian streaks and sort of a small government emphasis becoming increasingly anti-statist in certain areas and uh, you know I, i think there's some caveats to that about which areas we're talking about but yeah, certainly not abortion, where they're very statist. Yep. There's, yeah, there's other areas where they want a more activist government, one that's going to keep track of individuals, one that's going to get neighbors to report um, what their neighbors are up to when it comes to bodily autonomy. Um, but at these sorts of core functions about can we collect revenue to fund our programs, uh, it's hard to have a functioning government when one party doesn't agree if that party is going to hold power. And we do, you know, every country has multiple political parties if they're a liberal democracy, but there's usually some basic agreement that, you know, we have to, we have to collect money in order to pay our bills. Uh, we, if we're going to do some basic administrative task, we want it to work reasonably well. I think once you get to the point that that agreement starts to fade, it becomes very difficult for the administrators running these programs to plan for the future, to you know think about uh, what they're going to be able to do with their resources, to make improvements, because there's such a state of uncertainty around whether they're going to have the capacity to actually make their programs functional or not. Yeah. Have you looked at that? So that's the uh, on the executive side, have you looked at what makes a functioning legislature? I mean, I, I look at the Senate working overtime and in a bipartisan way to draft, you know, legislation to resolve some of the worst features of our current management of our border. And then I watched it get lit on fire. I mean, is, have, you, have you looked at sort of how legislatures work as well? Yeah, I, I don't think you need to be a political scientist to see the difference in the last four years and the difference between the Senate and uh, the, the House. So, you know, Biden has two years where he had very slim majorities, but in the House he had a fairly small majority, not dissimilar in size to what the Republicans have now. And they, they got stuff done. They passed bills. They worked with their counterparts in the Senate. Um, they, they did some big legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is probably the biggest investment in uh, environmental issues that America has mm-hmm. seen. So there, there was some meaningful action that took place there, whereas the current um, House has – um, is not just a stark contrast from the Senate. It's a stark contrast 
with the Democratic-led House that came before it. Um, it keeps running through leaders. Uh, it is getting no meaningful legislation passed. It keeps throwing uh, roadblocks on issues where if there was an open vote, such as, say, Ukraine aid at the moment, it would pass uh, the House. Um, and so, I, you know, this is not terribly complicated. There isn't enough of a coalition within the Republican Party in the House to govern. Um, they don't agree within the party on basic things like what government should do, uh, whether it should uh, fund its programs, whether government should have basic capacity. And it, it's very difficult uh, to lead in that situation. And I think, you know, what you've seen is a, a couple of leaders, Kevin McCarthy and, and Mike Johnson, who have just really struggled to do much of anything. And eventually McCarthy lost because, you know, he signed off on allowing the government to continue to stay open, which is sort of a remarkable way to lose your job as, as a leader in government. I'm, I'm going to agree to allow government to not shut down, and now I'm going to lose my job. And, and so that, I think, perfectly summarizes the degree of dysfunction uh, that's occurring within the House. Um, if, there, if there was a bigger majority on, on the House majority side, maybe Johnson would have a little bit more leeway than he does now. But currently, we're, we're sort of on autopilot when it comes to getting meaningful things done um, because we're relying on the House to do stuff that it just does not seem to be able to do at the moment. Yeah, well, this is the second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, and one of those things is Ukraine. And, um, let's, let, let's, let me ask you a question, I guess, partly because I'm thinking about the world, about organizations that are not in the U.S., but international governing structures like the WTO or the International Court of Justice or, you know, heaven help us, the U.N. How should Americans think about the how how should we have confidence that they're doing the jobs we ask them to do? So I, I think it's, it's worth remembering that a lot of the international organizations that exist uh, came about in the 20th century as a result of American intervention and leadership in the world. And so the, the, the pick many of those organizations you talked about or organizations like the World Bank or the IMF, mm -hmm. they were created in a context where America was trying to establish um, some more order in the world and where America, frankly, has disproportionate influence in, in many of these organizations. Um, they're based in America. America might hold um, significant chunk of voting rights. It has veto power on key issues. Um, and so that, by and large, this is an international order that's dramatically benefited America, partly because it was designed at a time of American power and it reflects American interests. And I do think this is, and you know, I moved to the United States from Ireland, and so I have a little bit more of an outsider perspective. But I think when you hear some of the conspiracy theories about these international organizations, it reflects just a lack of historical knowledge about the way in which 
they were really designed to reflect and serve American power, um, while also allowing other countries to engage uh, in a way that would avoid future conflict. Um, so it's, it is a, an extraordinarily odd thing to see uh, this deep disdain for um, international organizations within the sort of Make America Great Again community when these organizations were the product of that period when America probably was great in the sort of 1940s, 1950s, when American power was, uh, you know, stood alone in the world. Uh, and so I, I do think there's just a lack of civic knowledge about the history and design of, of these types of organizations. Um, the, the critique is often not couched. I mean, people don't raise their hands and say, I'm ignorant, though, so I don't like it. What they say is they're bloated, they don't do their job, they're inefficient. Um, um, just from from your perspective as someone who focuses on the efficient use of government, um, do people in those organizations think about those questions? And are they taking the kinds of steps that you would advise them to take to run their operations well? Yeah, I, I think they do. Um, I think one of the challenge for international organizations is – as with any public organization, is defining what the bottom line is. And so one of the advantages of being a private organization relative to a public organization is that you have a clear bottom line, you're pursuing profitability, and you can measure everything against that bottom line, whether it contributes or not. Whereas the missions of some of these international organizations are just uh, going to be broader, vaguer, and harder to measure. Um, and so it's, it's more difficult to say whether an individual program um, that the UN sets up has contributed to its underlying mission or goals. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, like, that's just an inherent problem with public organizations, and it becomes a bigger problem when you get to international organizations. So that's one thing. But the second thing is these organizations go through um, reforms all the time. So, you know, I think I, I may be more familiarity with the World Bank. Um, you, every, it seems like every four or five years they're going through some large reorganization where they're moving things around. They're trying to pay attention to what is going to make them more effective. Um, so they're attentive to it. Um, and I think there, you know, there are, with it, as with any large bureaucracies, absolutely cases of administrative bloat and waste um, and inefficiency. Um, but it's it's not an unknown problem to them. Um, I do think, though, it's just the um, fundamental nature of these organizations is there are just these really large, unwieldy international organizations that you can't measure and manage in the same way that you would with um, a private organization with a pretty clear function. But on average, they still provide a lot of value to us. Um, I do think there would be, you know, there's room for more efficiency improvements there, but I would say don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So that of course, for me, makes me want to ask you about Europe and Brexit when that happened. I mean, how is it that a, is 
is a united Europe unable to um, articulate why it was a value? How is it that that, I mean, it, it, clearly Britain is now having buyer's remorse in many ways. What, what, why were they unable to see the value that you were talking about? And I, and I raise this not because I care about that issue very much. It's old, but it's related to Americans throwing out their government here to, in the U.S. Just how do people see the value that they're getting? It's a, it's a great question. So I, I think one of the dynamics and one of the parallels that you're putting your finger on there is that when you're a politician in uh, the home country of um, Italy or France or Ireland or England, it's very easy to blame things on the bureaucrats in Brussels. And so, the, you know, the bureaucrats in Brussels serve the same symbolic function that the, you know, the bureaucrats in D.C. do in America. And in particular, in the United Kingdom, that was really a core part of their politics. And it, it's not a coincidence that I think the, the leader who is maybe most associated with Brexit, Boris Johnson, was for a long time a columnist who was based in Brussels and he would write these stories about how terrible the bureaucracy was, how uh, inattentive it was to the uh, uh, concerns of Britain. A lot of these stories he made up, um, but it, it sold very well as this sort of Eurosceptic approach um, to thinking about the world. Uh, it wasn't a good reflection of reality, because in reality, I think if you talk to people who worked in the EU, uh, the UK always punched above its weight, and it always had extremely strong in, uh, influence on the outcomes of EU decisions. Um, so it wasn't uh, an honest reflection of what was going on, but it, it was popular. Um, I think the difference between the EU and the U.S. now is that Brexit is this cautionary tale for the rest of Europe, where uh, the U.K. exited out. And as you say, they, I think they're having a fair bit of buyer's remorse. It's created all sorts of problems with their economy, with their relationship with other countries in Europe, including uh, in Northern Ireland. Um the younger voters who voted to stay in are the generation that's getting older now and feel like they've been denied opportunities um, to be citizens of Europe. You, you consistently hear these stories of uh, British people traveling to Europe and being surprised that they have to go in the slow lane when it comes to passports because they're no longer EU citizens. Um, so I think the cost of Brexit has been not just a, um, a cautionary tale for the British people, it's also been one for other parts of Europe who now look at a real case of what happens when a country drops out of the system, loses many of the benefits, and says, well, maybe that's not for us. And so now even the most sort of Euro-skeptic leaders, you think of someone like Orban in Hungary, who are incredibly critical of the EU, um, at the same time, do not want to leave the association. They see the value, even if they're super critical of, of the institution. Yeah, I'm hoping that some of that will also be a cautionary tale here in the U.S. for people who want to say, you know, we're better off if we pay no attention to 
I don't know, uh, a government in Washington who we may disagree with sometimes. Um, for example, Texas saying, hey, I can have my own border police and we can get rid of the federal government. I just the, the um, pulling apart instinct is pretty deep. It is, um, and it, the, the, you know, as one of the things I think we've all heard more of in the last few years is this discussion of civil war and secession, and it's become almost normalized where you have governors talking about um, uh, states' rights in a way that echoes uh, both the, the Civil War period in America or in the 1960s under conditions of segregation. Um, it, it, it is deeply disturbing to have such loose talk that is critical of the Union and the reason why the United States exists in the first place. Um, and you certainly hope it doesn't get to a Brexit-type situation. You certainly hope it doesn't lead to uh, political violence, uh, but the, the sort of temperature keeps going up on this, uh, where states like Texas are pushing the boundaries of, of what is legal um, to see how far they can get in, in, in the in the way. Yeah, um, hopefully Brexit will will be a cautionary tale that brings us back from the brink, but. Um, you, your work is so important, and it's such a reminder to all of us that governments have jobs to do, really important jobs, and that we, they can do it well, um, and they can do it uh, less well. And if you w- focus on the right things, you can always do it better. And that's what your work is, and that's why it's so important. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really, um, I really appreciate it. All right, everybody, Um, we're going to take another break for the news. And when we come back, um, uh, Colonel Vindman is joining me again. We have to talk about Ukraine. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody. Um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is back with us again. I think this is our third conversation. He is... um, I want to say best-selling author now. I, the, one of the last times we talked was when the book first came out. He's now a bestseller. Um, uh, he was, of course, the director of European affairs at the National Security Council. He, his uh, courage in speaking out about what he saw led to one impeachment. Um, and I want to talk with him about Ukraine today. So, uh, Colonel, thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for having me back, Edwin. Um, I worry that we have not done enough to make the case for helping Ukraine. And I, 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 leaving aside the, the unconscionable behavior of the Republicans, there's so much other things to talk about that we don't focus on this as well as we should. And I wonder if you can help me today on this horrible anniversary, um, remind everyone why what's the why the fight in Ukraine is our fight? Um, it's just I, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks 
again for having me on. Uh, I think the fact is, you know, uh, sec- anniversaries tend to be a moment of reflection. Uh, in this one, uh, we could reflect on the previous two years of war, the 10 years of uh, of war since it, this war first began in 2014, and frankly, the 30 years or more of uh, our relationships with Russia and Ukraine. You know, the conclusions about the, these last two years of war, frankly, um, are consistent with the previous 10 and, and to a certain extent the previous 30. We have not learned enough. We have not done enough to secure U.S. interests. We have um, basically been overly focused on on our relationship with Russia, uh, initially on a set of hopes that we could bring them into the Western world, uh, make them a democracy, and then fears of a devolving relationship and hostilities and another Cold War with a, a nuclear superpower. And on that basis, we have underinvested in our relationships in the region. Uh, we have been overly transactional, not long-sighted about how our short-term decisions around um, catering to Russia and uh, you know, basically denying Ukraine, uh, denying uh, Ukrainian aspirations for integration with Europe. Uh, we have not focused on the long term, which is what we need to do for ourselves and for our most important alliance, which is which is uh, Europe and NATO. And the consequences of that now are two years of war, hundreds of thousands uh, killed, uh, continued and growing instability in Europe, uh, an emboldened Vladimir Putin. Uh, we've seen that trend line consistently over his roughly 25 years in uh, as the head of the Russian Federation. We've seen that play out with the murder of Navalny. We've seen that now play out with some noise noises coming out of a country called Moldova, right between sandwiched between Romania and Ukraine, where there's a push for potentially a referendum for that breakaway region from Moldova to join Russia. And that's a recipe for, for a broader confrontation. And, you know, I, we, what probably makes the situation more acute than it has been in the preceding 30 years is that a portion of our uh, political establishment has really been captured by kind of, as a Putin narrative, Putin narrative by the um, this idea that uh, somehow the U.S. has more in common, more affinity for a dictator. Vladimir Putin than we do for democracy, and that again does a, takes us really down a dark path where it, where it emboldens Putin to be more bold, more aggressive, because he doesn't have to contend with half of the political establishment holding him accountable. It's instead arresting aid to Ukraine and uh, sowing discord and making us weaker. I. Um I think people don't remember that Putin didn't feel any need for the real estate that's Ukraine so long as Viktor Yanukovych was in charge, a corrupt uh, guy in the Russian mold. But when the Ukrainian people said, no, we don't want to be that. We want to be free. We want to have a system of government that looks more like the West, where people have some say in how the government acts. Only then did Putin decide, oh, you know what, that's too dangerous to have on my border. And that is an existential threat for all of us, if we understand it that way, that his goal is to extinguish the right of people to have any, hold their leaders accountable anywhere. That's That, that should speak to Americans. Yeah. I think the fact is that Ukraine ha- holds a special place in the Russian psyche, 
certainly in the psyche of the elites, which don't see a Russian identity absent uh, the, the Ukrainian people subjugated. Something that they've been struggling to do for you know, centuries to, to subjugate that population. They see it as part of their heartland. Um, you know, uh, the identity really consists of, of Great Russia, Moscow, Little Russia, which is what they refer to Ukraine, uh, Ukraine as, and uh, Belarusians, the white Russians, uh, Belarus. And those are all absolutely cent- central to who the Russians think they are in order to be a viable power. So uh, there's there's certainly something to um, to be said about the different swings in, in Ukrainian politics. Uh, the Orange Revolution is probably where Russia, uh, where Putin first took his most uh, started taking a much more aggressive tone towards Ukraine. Uh, mm-hmm. After Yanukovych came to power in 2010, he felt like he could continue to manipulate uh, Ukraine like he was doing uh, with Belarus, slowly working Belarus back into the fo- folding it back into Russian power. But the fact is that the Ukrainians had no interest in, in being uh, subjugated to, to Russian power and continue to march forward and, and work and integrate. And uh, this has been both about Russian identity, but also the fact that Ukraine as a viable dem- democracy on, on Russia's borders is, is a very, very um, challenging um, a, a challenging, um, how should I say this, notion, because if these people, these kind of, you know, backwoods, hillbilly Russians, this is using the Russian kind of uh, pejoratives for, for the Ukrainians, are able to have a prosperous, democratic life where they're able to make their own determinations about the future, why can't the great Russians have the same thing? And those are, those are the, you know, the underlying causes that had um, precipitated Russia's aggression. It's not any of this nonsense about, like, you know, Ukraine being aggressive or posing a threat or NATO expanding in in Russia's direction. There hasn't been expansion in in that direction in in decades. It's about Russian identity. It's about subjugating a free uh, democratic people. Talk more about that NATO expansion bit, because I hear all the time from people that Russia's just reacting because, you know, we keep moving the West closer to the borders of Russia. Yeah. Um, I don't see it that way, but I hear it all the time. And, and that is a that is a critique I hear yeah. from the left, not the right. Well, I mean, you, you hear it from the, the kind of the, the ivory palaces of academia. You know, in your neck of the woods, John Mearsheimer is probably one of the biggest proponents. You have Stephen Wall, you've got uh, Walt. Uh, um, these are kind of old school realists that for some reason, you know, absent all of the data, absent everything that Putin himself has said about why he's conducting this war, that he doesn't believe in the legitimacy of the Ukrainian people as an independent people, in spite of all these things, continue to say nonsense about NATO expansion. When the, the, you know, if you look at the facts, there hasn't been NATO expansion towards Russia's borders for for, for fifteen more than fifteen years before Russia launched this invest, uh, invasion. Now, of course, we have Finland joining, Sweden's on the cusp of, of joining NATO. Also, mm-hmm. those are uh, uh, those are now adjacent to to Russian territory, but. That wasn't the case. Uh, we hadn't had expansion in, in a long time before that. So it, it really doesn't make sense. It's, it's mainly a play uh, for Russia to be able to, to 
before Ukraine completely slipped through Russia's fingers, before it spun out into, on its own uh, and became too powerful for Putin to be able to fold it in. He tried to do this back in 2014 with a small land grab of Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. He thought that was enough to, to you know, sow discord and chaos and prevent Ukraine from uh, prospering and integrating. He was wrong. The will of the Ukrainian people was uh, is indomitable. Uh, and he launched this big war, war for the entire country to finally subdue it, to finally do what couldn't be done um, by any other means, economic coercion, political coercion, influence operations. And he decided to use the military tool. And we are now two years into this war um, where the, the West is just simply not doing enough. Again, not just simply for Ukraine and the aspirations of the Ukrainian people to end the suffering, to help Ukraine liberate its, its oppressed peoples that are living under Russian occupation, but for our own security, making sure that the message is clear that the use of military force uh, is not a, uh, a, a acceptable tool to achieve your political aims. Uh, and um, Russia has to suffer that, the punishment has to suffer that loss in order to send that message uh, to, to Russian leadership, but leadership around the globe to prevent these things from unfolding in, let's say, uh, Taiwan with regards to China. Iran, uh, North Korea, other or Venezuela, and it's you know it, it's uh, efforts to coerce uh, Guyana over kind of uh, you know grab for oil uh, oil rights and so forth. So I mean, this is a bigger bigger struggle, much bigger than just Russia and Ukraine. And it's the Russians that are uh, correction. It's the Ukrainians that are carrying the water, bearing the cost for for the democratic world at large. This week, um, Senator Schumer and a delegation either have just are on their way back or are still in Ukraine to honor those who who have died in this fight. And maybe the pressure speaker, Mike Johnson, who's too busy, I guess, talking to God uh, to pay attention to what's happening in the real world. Um, um, he, Johnson's picked a side and history is not going to be kind to him, I think, was the message that Schumer is delivering. But how, are there, you pay more attention to this than I do. Do you think they're the votes to discharge in Congress and get an aid bill on the floor? Uh, so I've been very pessimistic about uh, getting this aid bill through since things since kind of a, you know, the deal uh, was unraveled. Excuse me one second. I'm going to sneeze. OK, sorry. Um Yep. Since the the deal um, unraveled back in the October timeframe, um, I didn't think anything was gonna, g- going to happen. We actually have a window of opportunity, uh, mainly because the Senate passed a bill that uh, the House could vote on, and I also kind of sense the the political winds um, shifting against the Republican Party's intransigence and, and uh, its uh, catering to Donald Trump and. and um, I think mainly because they've they've gone so far beyond the pale on all these scandals. The whole uh, Biden impeachment uh, inquiry blew up in their face because it turns out that they're witting agents of the Russian intelligence services. The murder of Navalny, Trump inviting. Um, you know, this is probably one of the most dangerous things that's happened in recent history. Trump inviting Russia to attack NATO is all kind of creating uh, almost a, 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 the perfect kind of situation for pressure to to um, to come in and uh, compel Republicans to bring this this vote to um, the floor 
Uh, and I think there's a reasonable chance that could happen. But I think it would be uh, what needs to happen is that uh, your listeners need to be doers. They need to be engaged. They need to take out the phone and call the con- their congressmen. You have uh, you know a broad listenership throughout the, the area. There are folks that are uh, Republicans that are in uh, districts where there is a Eastern European, you know, Polish, Ukrainian community that could say this is an important issue and compel them to uh, bring this issue to a vote. And if that happens, uh, there should be overwhelming support. Just because there are plenty of Republicans that would then receive the signal that it's okay to vote their conscience. Right now, that, that's all being suppressed by uh, by Trump and, and MAGA and the desire to be obstructive and, you know, frankly, in certain ways, cater to who the new hero is of the, the, this extreme far right, which is uh, Putin. Not Zelensky, the courageous leader of Ukraine, but Putin. So uh, I think there is there is a possibility of something being done, but we all need to be engaged and, and push on this issue as hard as we can. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I feel this is so much in the interests of of democracy, in the interests of the United States, and in the interests of peace. Because um, I know it's it's counterintuitive for many, um, particularly on the left, to think that um, uh, an investment in weapons um, can be something that preserves peace. But this Russian behavior, or as you said, uh, and other nations looking at what's going on here, the world could be much more violent and awful than it is. And, and the tragedy in Ukraine could be in Poland. The tragedy in Ukraine could be, right? It's just, um, we need to protect, and we need to push back. Uh, Is the weapons package, um, uh, does does this new bill include the kinds of weapons that will finally let uh, the Ukrainians push back, not just hold a lot? Yeah, so... Uh, I, I'm going to uh, unfortunately deflate a little bit of the, the speculation around this. Um, most of the money that has been set, sent to date has not gone. The Ukrainians don't actually see hardly any of the money. There's some budgetary support that they get on a monthly basis to make their to make ends meet, you know, pay soldiers' salaries. But the money for the weapons, they don't see any of that. Uh, none no, of that comes here. in their direction. No, it's right. all spent here. So basically, it's 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 what it's called replenishment. We give the Ukrainians our old gear, and in exchange, the newest, shiniest, most high tech gear comes off the production line, goes back into our military. So what we're with this next sixty billion dollar tranche, unfortunately, it's likely to be more of the same. Um, what what uh, this happens though is that the administration, the Biden administration, would then be able to figure out what what weapon systems are most useful now. You know, uh, the Biden administration, frankly, has been imperfect in in addressing the challenges of of the Ukraine war. They have not provided sufficient resources, sufficient capabilities, sufficient quantities for Ukraine to to be successful. It has been kind of a slow uh, drip of of support. So uh, at least, though, with that $60 billion, there are resources that could be pushed over to Ukraine, even if it's imperfect. At least they could get more artillery. Right now, the Russians are outgunning the Ukrainians. Uh, But, you know, absent... Absent this this bill, even this perfect bill and the policies of, of this administration, things go from you know difficult to critical. So this is non-negotiable. This this 
a bill needs to pass, and then the administration actually does need to do some courageous things. There is something to be said about peace through strength. Uh, I think, you know, clearly somebody, uh, uh, an icon uh, for the Democratic Party, like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, believed in this. He he had established land lease for allies before the U.S. was involved in the war to support them in the struggle against fascism and, and Nazis. Uh, I think we we need to recognize that we live in a world where um, not everyone shares our sentiments about uh, the, the desire for peace. Uh, a lot of countries believe in the, this principle of um, the strong do what they, they can, the uh, correction, the, the um, the, the small states uh, do what they uh, they can, and uh, I can't, let me get one more time. The small states do what they must. The big states do what they can. It's a, it's a kind of a famous line from Xi um, Jinping and his leadership. Yeah. So it's, it's this uh, predator mentality, uh, and we need to be strong in order to defend against that. Well, um, I I cannot tell you how important it is that um, all of us and and you have a. Uh, more important voice on this than many. And so I'm, I'm honored that you will spend some time with us and help share this message because um, this is the window. We have to do this now. We just have to do it. And yep. uh, f- failure should not be an option. And, I, and in this case, even though we Democrats don't get everything right, the, there is one small faction in our government that's holding this up. It's not even all Republicans. It's a small faction, and it should not be allowed to stand. Absolutely true. And I think we're in more, unfortunately in a more dangerous moment than, uh, than most people recognize. I think uh, strength is, is now even more important than it would, would have been even a couple of weeks ago, because I think Vladimir Putin smells opportunity. He smells opportunity in the chaos that is a 2024 election cycle and hyper in the invitation by the Republicans, uh, by, by Donald Trump, and therefore the Republicans to sit on the sidelines if Russia were to attack uh, Ukraine. This this is, or correction, if Russia were to attack the, um, the uh, NATO and, and our European allies, it is not a, a distant kind of what-if scenario if Trump gets reelected. It's a scenario because Trump has captured the, the Republican Party and has bent them to his will, like he did on the border security deal. Uh, so now I think the fact is that the Russians are sniffing around, seeing what, where the opportunities are. And we need to be prepared for those dangers. The visit to the senators uh, is important. President Biden's statement just within the past couple of days calling out um, NATO as a critical alliance that we would defend uh, under all circumstances is important, but we need to do more. We need to pass this 70, uh, $60 billion deal uh, to show that we actually, there's, there's something more than words. There's, there's deeds behind it. Otherwise, we really face some, uh, some significant risks to our troops currently serving in that part of the world. I was asked by someone, would you really send your son to go fight for Poland if if Russia invaded? And my answer was, I would go myself because of my son's future. Um, I don't think people understand the world we live in if they think that, you know, it's far away and we don't. I mean, we've been through this in American history before. Oh, it's far away and it doesn't matter. And 100 million people get killed. Well, I think it matters uh, on the macro level when we talk about democracies and the struggle between authoritarian regimes and, and uh, democracies and matters for our alliance. Uh, 
NATO, uh, which is really kind of one of the very foundations of our strength. They're our biggest trading partner. They're the, the you know one organization that we can rely on when we are under attack. The only time that collective defense was invoked was after September 11th. But it also matters for your, your you know for that person that asked that question. One of the reasons that they were suffering from some uh, a spike in inflation is because we're all paying a tax to Putin uh, as long as this war continues. That has to do with uh, you know instability in the oil markets, in, in grain shipments, and things of that nature that causes a direct impact. So it is a very much an interconnected world. Uh, there is no such thing as kind of, especially on the scale of a Russia-Ukraine war, of, of us being able to sit down on the sidelines and not be affected by it. Yeah, yeah. And that other threat that you talked about, the one that Putin is counting on, the chaos that he can help sow in America in an election year. And the, uh, I just I hope that that we say loud and clear, we are going to defeat Mr. Trump and we are going to hold you accountable for meddling in a way that we were not able to in the last few years. Your, your, your reign of messing with this democracy is coming to an end, Mr. Putin. And the first way we do that is to stop him in Ukraine. Yep. Well, I think that's, that, that should be a message. You know, when you say Putin, I, uh, my mind automatically kind of also could search and replace uh, Trump in there. But I think it's very true. We do stop uh, Putin in, in, in Ukraine to prevent something from spilling over where we really wouldn't have any choice to sit down on the sidelines. But I think we also need to demand and uh, expect. I think we are witnessing accountability against Trump uh, unfold slowly. That's coming occurring in, in the civil co- uh, courts right now with these mm-hmm. massive judgments. You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, $450 million that he has to cough up. Uh, uh, if there are questions of whether he has those kinds of assets um, available or does he have to start selling off? I think there's a reasonable chance that he's going to face uh, crim- uh, you know, some of these criminal prosecutions in either state or federal courts. And that may play itself out. You know, if it doesn't play itself out before the election, it'll certainly play itself out after. It's not like these things are going to disappear. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, uh, Trump is fighting so hard because he knows uh, he could see, you know, that uh, that um, his, his actions uh, are are going to come to account uh, that, you know, the legal system will finally catch up with him and he, he will, will, will first go I, I, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but you look at his hair. He looks good in orange. He looked just yeah, fine yeah. in that jumpsuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think in all that, that whole uh, Trump crime family thing will start kind of unraveling. Yeah. Hey, um, speaking of families, before you go, you have about two and a half minutes to go. Do you want to take some time and talk about your brother's campaign? Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. So uh, my twin brother, Eugene Vindman, uh, also served in, in the military. He had a long career, 25 years in, in uniform. Uh, he served on the National Security Council with me. Uh, he was uh, with me when I reported uh, um, Trump's corruption resulting in the first impeachment. He suffered the, the uh, consequences of being fired from the White House and then kind of being relegate, relegated to the sidelines by uh, a conservative defensive establishment. And now he's looking to, to serve in a different capacity. He's work, He's running for Northern Virginia. I think that area kind of would resonate with some of the, uh, some of your listeners, the same type you of bet. people, a lot, large working class uh, community, lots of public servants, frankly, in that area because it's uh, relatively close to D.C. 
uh, and he's running, of course, as a, as a um, you know a Democrat, uh, a centrist Democrat. You know, probably, I wouldn't say he's he's too far. You just don't get folks too many folks like that, and that are coming out of uniform because we think about how do you you know you get along, how do you compromise, how do you bring the most people along. So he's he's running an excellent campaign, uh, really engaging with uh, the population. Uh, in general, and he's he's doing some pretty good fundraising. I encourage your listeners to to look up his website, uh, Venom for Congress, and donate, contribute. Uh, the fact is that we have to pay, all pay our uh, taxes. Our taxes pay the salaries of of these elected officials. Wouldn't it be nice to pick your team and uh, pay the people you want to pay, as opposed to whoever whoever happens to be elected? So your donations help you build that team. Thank you. And um, you know what? We must control Congress. We have to get rid of this uh, reign of error and stupidity. Um, So uh, I encourage everybody to look up uh, uh, Eugene Vindman's website and um, support Democrats in this incredible year. Thank you so much, as always, for your time. It's really great to catch up. Thanks, Edwin. I'm looking forward to the next time. Okay. All right, everybody, we're going to take a break and your calls when we come back. Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820. Let's start right away with Jim. Hi, Jim. Hi, Edwin. Fundamentalism has been a thorn in the side of the Democrats for about 40 or 50 years. It's time we address it. And make the voter realize that we're not voting in a religious manner. We're not we're Democrats because we believe in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, higher wages, unions, and these aren't against uh, any religion in particular. And I know for a fact that uh, they're voting. Uh, the Republicans are, are counting on this. But in the meantime, their real masters are the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society, the think tanks, the Republican Party, and they have nothing to do with religion. They're only uh, they're only uh, uh, they forward his power, and uh, you, you like Trump with his upside down Bible. I mean, it was ridiculous that you've got the general. Uh, Lynn, who's uh, was some kind of a uh, fascist, uh, something like a Spanish uh, thing under Franco. I mean, it's time that, that we address that problem and get down to the basic facts of Americans and uh, what's the best for all of us. <laughs> That's what I got to say. And thank you, Edwin. Have a good of weekend. Course. Thank you. You, you too. You too. Um, Brian, let's turn to you. Good afternoon. Uh, uh, I feel this uh, business of uh, sending any military aid to other countries strikes me as excessively timid, even self-serving, as I believe it only benefits the privileged few in the United States. Uh, People living from paycheck to paycheck, at least 50 percent, $7.25 minimum wage. We have uh, food deserts. we uh, have to uh, address the most important concern of uh, climate change. Uh, we have a need for Medicare for all. Uh, I can uh, uh, go on and on. We have homelessness problems. Uh, I believe charity begins in the United States, not to other countries. Okay. You and I are going to disagree a little bit on that. 
I don't view supporting democracies when they're being attacked by their neighbors as charity. I view it as self-defense. Um, uh, humanitarian but, aid, I would say. Well, we need that too, but, but they'll, you need a whole lot more humanitarian aid if they get conquered. So, um, uh, and, uh, y- you know, it's, um, but we, again, that's what makes the world go round because on most of the other things you talked about, I couldn't agree with you more. We definitely have needs here at home. And I'm very proud of the efforts that Democrats have made in, the, in their, you know, last few years in power to begin to address some of these long-standing problems, the inequities, uh, the great wealth gap to rebuild our economy in a more fair way, to go after the uh, consolidation of corporate power. These are changes that are going to take a while, but um, they're the ones that Joe Biden has brought. Um, Don't uh, you find it disgusting that Biden sits down with Manchin and Cinema and uh, gives them all these uh, perks uh, for uh, and deals uh, when he should be uh, uh, had been uh, constantly verbalizing uh, as he was verbalizing uh, at the beginning of his uh, tenure there, uh, and then you see him on TV uh, constantly giving uh, gifts to uh, Man- Joe Manchin and uh, Kristen Cinema. I think that's what I found that detestable. And I think well, again, we, need, uh, we have no, we, we, you know, as Joe Manchin once said, look, if you don't like me, elect more Democratic senators. I mean, it's hard to be a Democratic senator in West Virginia, and he's not going to be uh, a champion of all the things that you and I are. Um, but he at least voted for the Democratic mile pipeline, did he not? And, I know. Uh, that's, uh, that could yeah, be an Huh? Yeah, no question, there's a pipeline. Um, but, but you, you got to keep politics is tough and we didn't have a vote to lose. I think it's a miracle what was accomplished when you look at the uh, uh, laws that were passed when Democrats were in charge from the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, to the uh, uh, infrastructure bill, to the American Recovery Act. These were these were miracles. We didn't get as much as we wanted, but we don't have a, we barely had a majority. You give the Republicans the same majority. They can't get out of their way and get anything done. So um, I'm not confused about who that who who's in our way here. If you elect more Democrats, it'll be easier and you won't have to, you know, spend as much time uh, doing the things you do in politics to get the, every vote you need because you'll have. Well, some I believe despair. we need more Senator Edward M. Kennedy's. Well, People we, like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Brian, thank you, as always. Really appreciate it. I'm going to keep thank going you. down the list, but you bet. Paul. All right. I think uh, Paul, are you I there? think the yeah. yeah, I am now. I think uh, the biggest need that we have is to uh, the most pressing issue is to stop the fascist Republican Party from taking away our rights, uh, not one at a time, but handfuls at a time. Um, this ruling down in Alabama about in vitro fertilization is a reckless abandonment of the Constitution. And not only that, it is a reckless abandonment of even Orthodox Christian theology. This is just a nutcase who is posing as the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. Or maybe he's both nutcase and Chief Justice. He's posing as one or the other. But imagine what questions are going to have to be before the Supreme Court. Because I don't disagree that the states can regulate or even prohibit 
in vitro fertilizations. Those are the powers of the states. They regulate medical procedures, but not by the reasons that he says, though, that children existed before they were born. That stands outside of any thought, mainstream thought, for millennia. And these these uh, fetuses that are frozen, these are property. But by the way, the Constitution doesn't doesn't prohibit people from becoming from being property. It just prohibits them enslaving them unless they've committed a crime. So the questions that have come up, by the way, if they're people, he says that people exist before they're born. The only the only the only argument I hear for that would be the Nicene Creed that said that Jesus was eternally begotten. He existed before he was born. I don't know about anybody else, but it's so outside. Then what about if they're people, are they citizens? Do we count them? Do, does, should the census be counting frozen embryos? And how long, if you can't dispose of them because that's, that is, um, you know, that, that, that's wrongful death, how long do they, a life in, in, in suspended animation did they get? Indefinite? This is nuts. It is beyond nuts. It's nuts for it's nuts on its face um, for for all the reasons that you, you Paul, have been clear about. It's also so dangerous because it may it 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 undermines the rule of law because this isn't the rule of law. This is this is uh, such an abuse of of the way law works that people can't take it seriously. And even if you wanted to take it seriously, it's too ridiculous because of the problems that you, you've you outlined. Okay, uh, you're right. Like, uh, now we're going to have to keep people in ice boxes. Wait a minute, you can't do that. Or they're going to get to vote in 18 years or whatever it is. doesn't make any sense. It's utter chaos. And it's chaos um, on purpose because the more that they can create... Right turmoil in America, the more you create the grounds for a dictatorial change, which is, of course, right out of the Russian playbook and what Donald Trump yes. is doing. So let's right. let's as you as right as you began, let's keep our eye on the prize and save our democracy and sweep all of these terrible people off the field so we can rebuild the country um, so that it works for everyone here, everyone here. Even the ones who right. right now have blinders over their eyes, right? Um, well, yeah. So just think about previous caller Brian. The threat of what the Republicans are taking away from you ought to make you both angry and fearful. That doesn't mean that we don't we can't govern from a position as Democrats of hope and optimism, but we do have to deal with the politics in front of us, and if we continually elect Democratic presidents and either give them no majority in the Congress or such a sliver-thin majority, we can't expect to accomplish the kinds of ideals that we hope for, can we? Because that's the way government works. Paul, the Democrats accomplished amazing things in the first two years of the Biden administration. So so I don't want to sell short. Even with a little majority, it required the kind of politicking that makes people sick to their stomach, you know. Um, But but that's real politics and it gets things done. And and the Biden administration um, and the leadership in the Senate and the leadership in the House performed remarkably well. And they passed legislation that's going to help Americans for decades 
You know, I mean, I, yeah. a bigger majority, so they could do more. But they did a lot. I don't want to ever sell short the accomplishments. No, I'm not doing that. But yeah. We, yeah. let's give ourselves less room to complain and more room to accomplish when we By, get up <laughs> and we vote and we actually put the people in office who are going to do what we'd like to see done. I'll leave it there. <laughs> uh, to, yes, and to, to and to quote uh, Mike Johnson, Amen. <laughs> All right, Paul. Thank you. Have a good one. <laughs> yep. Um, Claire, you're next. Hi. Hi. I have two Hello. things on my mind. Hi. The two things on my mind a lot are one: are enough celebrities coming to the front line like Taylor Swift? She's come out to get out the vote. and But, you know, Oprah Winfrey has a loud voice, and I don't see her using it. And I see sports figures like Michael Jordan and others in Hollywood, Meryl Streep. I mean, do you know or am I missing it? Is there How come there's not enough voices right now? And I hope at the Oscars this year they use the platform to, to do that. I don't know if they will. So that's my one thought, and I want to know your thoughts. The other thought I have is, we're losing Democrats who are angry at Biden because of Israel and Gaza. Some of my friends, they said they're not going to vote. They're going to sit it out. And I told them that's voting for Trump. Well, I have to send a message to Biden that I'm unhappy. And I'm like, I'm unhappy, too. But, you know, you're going to burn it all down because of this. I mean, I said, we, we got to have if we have one or the other, what, what are you going to do? You know, it's going to end up with Trump if you continue this. So those are my two things that are weigh, weighing heavily on my mind. Those are two weighty things. I have all I have all, basically nothing to say about the first one. I'm not a celebrity follower, really. So I don't pay that much attention, to be honest, to what they say. Um, I, I know that that's that's on me. I know they have an important voice and I hope that they use it. But I wouldn't know whether they have or haven't. So I apologize. I can't really talk about that one on the second one. Um, look, Biden has done. Um, I think what he's done in the Middle East is misunderstood. He's responsible for the only ceasefire that they got over there. Um, he's responsible for getting any um, uh, humanitarian aid into Gaza. Um, this is on him. No one else did that. Um, and it's very tough. You know, the American president doesn't get to say uh, who, when another nation's at war or not. That's just not how it works. Um, but I think you'll see that. And I think uh, Democrats who are, you know, in fairness, the pain over there is enormous. What's happening in Gaza is unconscionable. What happened in Israel on October 7th was unconscionable. And, and, and the, the terrible things over there continue. And the humanitarian toll, it is it, it makes you sick, right? And and you want it to stop. But the president of the United States can't just wave a magic wand and make it stop. So I think you'll see that the diplomacy, he's worked very hard um, to end this and to bring about a longer-term solution, you know, and saying to Israel, look, those settlements at Mike Pompeo, the Republicans said were perfectly legal in the West Bank. They aren't. They are a violation of, of, of law. Um, that's important message sending. Um, and, you know, I think overall, the idea that we can get a bigger piece in that region that gives the Palestinians the sovereignty and the dignity they so deserve and rebuild um, after this terrible tragedy. Biden's worked very hard on that. And I think you can tell your friends that. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully this 
the, the war phase of this will be over sooner rather than later. It's already way too long. Um, but it's a terrible tragedy. And, and, um, and I don't blame people for being, you know, enraged and heartbroken about it. But you have to be smart. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, he would have solved this problem by dropping bombs on Gaza. You know, it's a, uh, it, it's. Um, and, and you know, I tried telling them it will be way worse under Trump, and you know, it's and Biden is doing what he can. Like you said, everything you said, I basically said that he can't control everything. But they're, you know, even on MSNBC, they had some people in Dearborn, Michigan, saying that they're so angry at Biden for allowing it that. They're not going to vote or, or whatever. Oh. I don't think they're going to vote for Trump, but it's really I, crazy. It's, it's like yeah. burn it all down, right? <laughs> well, but it, politics is never easy. And, you know, it, the, um, there's a large um, Palestinian community uh, here where I live and, and large Arab community um, in Michigan. And that the pain of Gaza is deeply felt. And, um, and it would be political malpractice not to acknowledge that. Um, and then what you have to do on the world stage is fight for a f- just um, future in that. It, it, and that just future has to begin immediately. I mean, I, I have no patience for the continued slaughter in Gaza. I don't. Um, and that doesn't mean for one second, I think Hamas is anything other than a terrorist organization and what they did in October 7th is anything other than a, in a, in a real crime. Um, but it, um, the, the aims that Israel, uh, uh, wants to achieve, it cannot achieve through, um, um, military, through further military action. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's tough. But I think Biden is closer to this and has, and has spent more political capital trying to bring, um, trying to create a future over there, frankly, than any president since, um, certainly since Bill Clinton. Um, and, and I'm mindful of the one of the two decent things that happened when Trump was president. One was the Abraham Accords. So, um, but I think this is a much bigger effort. Anyway, Claire, um, I, I don't think you've Thank called you. before, have you? I may have called once. I've called a few other shows. I think I may have called you some time back, but I like your perspective. Well, I agree with you. I just worry about short-sighted people here that are going to sit out at the election when Biden can't afford to lose any votes. And I worry about no labels, too. I think yeah, away well, votes from Biden. You wouldn't be on the Democratic side if you weren't a worrier. That's what we do. But you know what? We are stronger and tougher than we've been, and we're better organized. And for gosh sakes, we're running against a criminal. You know, this is we're going to win this, but it's going to be tough. Anyway, thank you for your call. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Ron, I think you're next. Hello, um, Edwin. Edwin, uh, I wanted to talk about the upcoming election in uh, Michigan. But first of all, about, as far as Ukraine goes, um, I'm, I'm uh, first of all, I believe NATO expansion is responsible partially, if not a lot, for the, the Ukraine war. But it's also U.S. policy since Afghanistan. It's the uh, destruction of the Soviet military. And uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm for that now because they support Hamas. But I, I'm against this war. But uh, kill Russians as long as we, we do not hurt any more Amer- any American soldiers. But the, but the thing of it is, 
if you read the New York Times, I don't care. The Ukrainians have been fighting for a long time, a decade. They are tired. They are worn down. They are dead. And they are taking people off the street. The only way they're going to win, I don't, they don't have enough people to demand the weapons. I don't care what Colonel Vindman says. They want U.S. help, but U.S. does not have the personnel. And it's just, I'll tell you, every one of these progressive talk show hosts who are you know, pro-Ukraine, pro how many of their kinfolk are in, in the military right now? None of them. None of them. If they really back that, but tell me how many of your kinfolk are in the military. Don't wait for Poland to be invaded. Join now, because if you, if you wait for Poland, it's going to take over a year for him to get into the military and fight. Get in now if you really mean that. Now, as far as the, the election in Michigan, uh, the uh, Arab vote is going to go against Joe Biden, okay? Uh, because of his policy in Israel, against Hamas and Israel. I am pro-Israel, plain and simple. They, are gonna, they, are, they have already lost the House majority for the Democrats with their support uh, going to the Republicans. If that's the way they want it, if they want to go uh, Republican and not support the Democratic Party and their uh, policies, which I support, I, I know it's not an overall support in, in the Democratic Party, but there is no unified policy in the Democratic Party, and we're lucky we can get together and vote together at one time or another. But that's my opinion, Edmund. Okay. Well, um, I I caution you not to be as certain that uh, people will abandon the Democratic Party to punish Joe Biden. Today's passions are running high. We have eight months of a campaign ahead of us. And I plan on using every day of those eight months to the best of my ability to make sure people understand the full choice, um, not minimizing uh, the parts that people are upset about, but they understand the full choice. And, um, and I'm, I do have a I'm uniform. Excuse, excuse me, uh, but I have a sewing uniform right now. I'm sorry for interrupting, but I got to put that in there. I... Um, and is he uh, in service overseas? He's uh, he's not overseas at this time. He's in training. And that brings up another point. Yep. In his training, they do not have equipment to train on. They don't have Humvees. They don't have night vision goggles. They don't have the proper health. So Mr. Colonel Dinman says, we're just taking this stuff off the shelf. It's no law. Baloney. I have kinfolk in the military right We don't have stuff to train on. Another point. Um, I, I, no, no, no. Look, um, the military issues are complicated. We have spent a lot of money on our military, right? More than everybody else by a lot. Um, there, the, the, uh, I doubt that there's no equipment. I don't doubt that you are correct that um, occasionally it doesn't show up where it's supposed to show up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, but I don't think it's for a lack of well, for what we spend on stuff. I think there's plenty of equipment. If it doesn't end up at the uh, a base where he's training, that's a logistical issue, I think, more than a, a supply issue. But um, all important. Anyway, I, um, I thank you for listening. Thank you for being You're part of this ahead, conversation sir. and enjoy the rest of your weekend. All right. Um, you. you bet. Dave, I think you're next. Oh, hey, Edwin. Kind of to tie in to give you a, a little uh, heads up on that. Uh, uh, the Army 
says it could run out of funding to protect Europe and Africa without Ukraine's aid package. Funds from the Europe and Africa Army Command budget are being used to support Ukraine. And the lack of additional funding could leave the budget completely drained. The Army has spent over $430 million on various operations, including training Ukrainian troops, transporting equipment, and U.S. troop deployments to Europe, all of this since October 2023, or the start of the fiscal year. They're basically borrowing from Peter to pay Paul without a 2024 budget approved by Congress. And without additional funding specifically for Ukraine, the command roughly has $3 billion left to pay for $5 billion of operational costs such as, at home, such as recruiting, training, as you guys were just talking about, and repairing. Like, there's many stories about the barracks and stuff like that, uh, in disrepair, and many, you know, many of the bases. You know, this kind of stuff. You know, these uh, little add-ons but, uh, that are necessary. And well, Dave, I, um, the money. I I, I want to be careful. Um, I'm as you know, I not everybody shares my view. I can can tell from the callers, but I feel very strongly about what we need to do to protect Ukraine. I think it's in our own self-interest. I do, however, know from a long life that our very well-funded military cries poor all the time. Um and, you know, what's happening is um, we are buying new equipment to replenish the stocks that go uh, when we send stuff over to Ukraine. I am not terribly worried that the army will run out of money. It, you know, the trillions of dollars we spend, well, they, can, they can cry all they want. I think we need to pass budgets. And I think they're very savvy about putting pressure on Congress to help pass their budgets. That's for sure. But I'm, well, um, as we spoke before, like I told you, recruiting has been down in all of the branches. Yes. Army, you know, they're they're down. They need the troops. They need to advertise to get the troops in and uh, entice them with, you know, bonuses or whatnot, you know, and uh, that will get them to be a retention. So, there's, you know, uh, the economy is count- recruitment is counter cyclical in a voluntary Army, when the economy is doing better and there are more jobs, it's harder to recruit people into the military. That's just that's always the case. So when you say recruitment is down, that's a problem. It's a problem we should address. But know that recruitment is down because the economy is better. Right. So we can't. You know what I mean? They're related. Well, on on the opposite of what you're saying, though, if you remember, I've talked before about all of these Reserve and National Guard units have been getting deployed out to the Mideast and all of these others now. It's And like I said back then, and I'll say again, that's nothing more than a backdoor draft because they could not get the recruitment yet. Well, thank you. And that was part of the forever wars. I mean, thank goodness that the the, the wars that were launched, the Iraq war, the biggest foreign policy disaster in our history um, and in this forever war in Afghanistan, thank goodness they are over. Right. And I don't want to go back and be involved in a war in Iran. And I don't want to be involved in a war in Poland. I want us to stop. And and say to people enough, we are going to use the strength that we have to to raise the price of violence on the other side so that we don't end up in that fight. Anyway, I've run out of time. I, I appreciate right. your call. And yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Call, you you bet.
All right. This is the second anniversary of that of that attack on Ukraine. You've heard me on it and others. Um, uh, it's all related to what kind of a democracy should we have and should democracy be safe where it exists? I appreciate your time today. Appreciate the discussion. Very lively. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you.